For every pound the government collects in taxes, it spends £1.30. And the debt element of that is going up all of the time, and you're not getting anything for that, and effectively we're in a spiral, a debt spiral. Hello, hello, how are you all? It's been a massive week here, very busy. I've got a massive weekend ahead. This week, me and Danny have recorded about 10 podcasts, and yesterday I closed on a bar. I bought a bar in Bedford called The Auction Room, which is very cool, and this weekend ahead, Rail Bedford have got two massive games. We're playing on Saturday, and we're playing on Monday, and depending on how results go from other games, we can secure the league. So keep your fingers crossed for us. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. My name is Peter McCormack, and today on the show, we have Dan Tubb back. Now, just before Christmas, I recorded a show with Dan, looking at the debt problem here in the UK. And do you know what was one of my favorite shows I recorded last year? I keep referring to it when making other shows. Keep talking about debt and overspending by government. So now we're back in the UK recording again. We asked Dan to come back on the show, give us a bit of a TLDR on that one and look at some possible solutions, but it didn't end up how I expected. This show is a little bit different from the first one. It gets into a lot of speculation and you're going to hear me disagree with Dan on a lot of things. But listen, I like talking to Dan. I like sitting down with him. Even if we completely disagree on our worldviews, we can still sit down and have a chat. Anyway, if you've got any questions about this, anything else, please feed back to me. It is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And also, we've got our live event in one week. James Lavish, Jeff Booth, Lawrence Lepard, Ben Ark, all coming to Bedford next Friday for WBD Live. If you want to get a ticket for that, please head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on WBD Live. Good to see you, man. Good to be here. The uh, last show we did was very popular. Good. And Danny would probably say it's the show I've referred to most. Would you say that since that? I think I said that to you. Yeah, you did. Yeah. On the way over, you, uh, yeah, you mentioned that. you got to keep with the mic, see? That's why we're getting uh, headphones. Okay. <laughs> That's where you notice it. Um, yes. And I, and I should thank you, actually, because um, I think until that point, my Bitcoin journey had been a rather lonely one because I, I really kind of got into Bitcoin at the start of the pandemic and I had a lot of time on my hands and so I kind of really went deep on it. But what I, what I probably didn't appreciate until I did your show the first time um, was that it had been sort of very, a very insular thing. And then after I did the show, a whole bunch of people started reaching out to me. So I, I guess it resonated with a number of people. Um, and some people just wanted to say hi, and that's great. Um, but I met a couple of really interesting characters off the back of that. So, um, I mean, a couple of them are worth mentioning, because I'm going to come to your live thing next week. Oh, you're coming? Great. Yeah, I'll come along to that. And I want to introduce you to a chap called David Parkinson, okay. who is building out um, a payment system in the UK. Mm -hmm. So that's a business which is just getting off the ground now, and I'm going to be involved in that and help in whatever way I can. Um, and the other one is um, um, a chap called um, Jeremy Casey. I feel like I know that name. You might well do. He, he's quite the evangelist. Oh, okay. So, uh, I mean, he's the sort of guy that can't walk past a restaurant without going in and converting them to Bitcoin and getting them to, to start accepting it. I think sometimes they, they, he turns, they, those people turn people off. They're a bit annoying. Oh, it's like one of those fucking he, he Bitcoiners. Do, he, he does it quite well, actually. Okay. Um, and, he, and he's kind of started this um, regular Bitcoin meetup in London now that's been going. Um, so every couple of months we all sort of get together and I've gone along to those and spoken at them. Uh, and it seems to be taking off. So I think he's going to tie up with um, Jordan from the Bitcoin Collective. Yeah, spoke the, to Jordan today. Oh, okay. So they're probably going to put their heads together and come up with something bigger in London, which will be fantastic because it will be a forum where every two, three months, something like that, 
um, the plebs can get together and have a beer and talk Bitcoin, but also it would be a forum where you can get policymakers, um, uh, chief execs, that sort of kind of crowd to come along and just it's a, in this environment for them to start talking and engaging with this stuff and saying, you know, what could it do for me? What can it do for my business? How can I think about it? Mm. So there's, there's a lot of value in something like that. And I, I think what being involved with these chaps have shown me is that the thing where people say, you know, you just got to hodl. You just gotta, you just gotta hold, and that's all. That's the only thing you've got to do. It's make, making me realise. No, actually, you've, no, they're completely wrong. Yeah, you've, 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 you've got to build. Yeah, um, you've got to build out the uh, the infrastructure like like David is, um, and you've got to grow the network like Jeremy is. And if you're doing those things, you know the Bitcoin will only be worth a million dollars when it's genuinely worth a million dollars to people because it has that value because it has their network. So, you know, as it becomes easier to use, and as um, you know, we, we get two billion people on it across the world. That's when it will really sort of take off. It's yeah. crucial moment. I love what Jordan's doing. I think he's a great guy. The um, the event they put up on in Edinburgh, actually, my son came along, my son and daughter came along. They ran the merch stand for me while I was uh, wandering did around. Do? Did very well. Okay. Yeah, did very well. I think I think we sold about... It's Real Bedford merch, the football team stuff. They oh, always okay. do very well. We always sell about... I think we did about... Was it about three grand? Yeah, three grand we did. Mm. Um and uh, I've done another event, we did about 6,000, which is great because wow. the money just goes all into the football club. And, um, but I, I, you know, when I heard about this event that they were doing, I didn't know them, didn't know anything of them. And part of me was a little bit like, uh, like apprehensive, nervous for them. I was okay. thinking in my head, I just pictured something that wouldn't be that great. And that's probably Were you really something a bit cringy then, a bit a little bit, bit the bit office, a little bit right, the office, okay. you know. Um, I, you know, I have to hold my hands up to them, and look, yeah. they crushed it. Mm. They had great speakers, they had great talks, they had really good people there. Mm. They had um, it was just it's just a really good event, event really well organised, and uh, you know, and I, the reason I've spoken to Jordan is we're doing this live event next week, mm. but. Uh, a year later, we're going to do our own event. We're going to do a four-one, possibly two-day conference here in Bedford, uh, which I used to think about as like, ah, oh, that's difficult. How do you get that many people to Bedford? Then I realised people will go to the places where Bitcoin exists, and yeah. Bedford has a Bitcoin. Bed, Bedford is a centre for Bitcoin because of the club, because of me and what mm. we've been doing here. And so, yeah, we're going to go for it. I'm, I want Jordan's help. I, yeah, I want him to support what we're doing. Mm. But that's really cool that you've. Uh, yeah, you're in with the nerds, man. Yeah, <laughs> the plebs. Yeah, you're in with the plebs. yeah. It was, yeah, you know, it was valuable. So, um, you know, you, when you start to build these sort of networks, um, you start to see sort of the depth behind this movement, and real good quality people as well. People who've done some sort of serious thinking about stuff. So, yeah, get, getting involved in person, being able to have a beer with somebody, there's a lot of value with that because it is so easy to sort of have your Bitcoin experience as being a purely online thing, because there's so many podcasts and ways you can sort of get involved over the net. But actually, there's no, there's no substitute for just standing there and, and having a chat with somebody with a beer in your hand. Well, we have the exact same feeling about why we do the interviews in person. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit easier with you because you're British, hmm. but uh, you can very easily do a remote show. And most people do. Almost everyone does. I mean, Jordan yeah. Peterson's is remote. Um, uh, Russell Brands is remote. Most of them do remote stuff, some in person. But you get a few people, you know, like Rogan, who stick to... In person, uh, rich role. In it sticks to in person. Yeah, and we try the best we can. We can't do it always because we have to react to news. But the conversations in person—they're mm. just infinitely better. It's a higher oh, yeah, quality, yeah. 
and you get that relationship. And another thing I've started doing is, is I'm spending a couple of days a week now with um, the Lotus Eaters team. So Lotus Eaters dot com. They're the ones uh, you were before, working for, writing for before, was it or something? No, I was I was just having conversations with them. Okay. I was just, I was just um, sorting something out with them. So, but but now I've I've sort of joined them two days a week, and I've got a show there um, called Brokenomics, okay. where I'm looking at you know why the financial system has gone wrong, trying to explain the components of it, and I found exactly the same thing. So I, I have had guests along for that. And um, I did one guy who lives in Barcelona, so I did that one remotely. But the rest of them, I've got the guys to come in. And you're right, it is, a, it is a far superior experience when you can look somebody in the eye and you get that sort of more natural rhythm of getting into the conversation with them. Well, there's no latency. Latency yes. kills the online conversation. Well, we're getting some latency here, but... Uh, yeah, well, not. Danny, take, don't, tell him. <laughs> don't take that. I'm trying very hard here. Yeah, don't take that. Um, so anyway, back to what I was saying. Mm. It's been the show I've uh, referenced people back to mm. uh, during the show, but even outside of the show the most. I don't know if you remember, I said one of the difficulties I have is trying to explain the problems with the financial system without sounding like a conspiracy theorist. Yes. And I've really struggled. Like CBDCs are a great example. When I yep. try and explain to people what is wrong with CBDCs and say, well, look, it's given the government too much information. You know, we could end up with a Chinese-style surveillance state whereby if you go to buy things, you're told you can't and you have a social credit score. And they're like, you're a fucking nutter. Like, what are you on about? And I, I know I'm right. I know the threat of what I'm talking about. Yet, when you're trying to explain this to a normal person, they're like, what are you, what are you on about? And so what I'd been doing with... And I thought the best data point within and we're gonna have to we're gonna have to go back through it but mm. the best data point for me was 120 billion is spent on yeah. servicing debt yes like the interest and Not you get even, nothing for that nothing yeah. nothing nothing's paid off and so what i've been saying to people is hey just so you know how fucked the uh mm. the uh, uk uh, financial system is and the economy is yeah, do you know how much money the government brings in tax receipts and they're usually like no it's like it's about one to one point one trillion and I'm like, do you know what the biggest expense is? And a lot of people get that right. Not everyone, but most people are like, is it the NHS? I'm like, yeah, it's about 200 billion. I'm like, what do you think it is next? And all kinds of things, pensions, whatever. And I was like, no, it is servicing the interest of the debt that yeah. they've accumulated. And I said, do you want to know why that's crazy? Because it's 120 billion, mm. yet they only spend 76 billion on ed education. So they're spending almost, they're mm. almost double on service and interest of the debt, and then they're spending on education. Imagine they had that 120 billion a year to put into education. Well, and as I pointed out, a lot of that um, spend is not actually um, departmental spend; it's non-cash items. So once you strip that out, that's why the, the debt interest goes directly after the NHS. And it wouldn't take too much in growth of debt interest to go beyond the operational budget of the NHS, even though the the, the total spend, including the sort of depreciation and other items they've got in there, is a little bit higher. Um, but but do you, yeah. sorry, let me just get to my point. Yes, sorry. the point I was getting to. So I'd explain this to them, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to get you here. You're going to finally realise this is all fucked. And then they're like, oh, okay. Anyway, do you see Man U lost yesterday? And it's like, <laughs> yes. yeah. I'm, I mean, look, I'm literally telling you about the collapse yes. of the financial system, how you're being robbed by the government, and all, I know what, know what's going to happen. We're going to come to another election. And they're going to be mm. like, oh, I don't think I can vote for Richie, so I might have to vote yep. for Keir. And it's just like, no, it's yes. all fucked. Yeah. And I can't get... I can't. Changing from the red team to the blue team is not going to do a damn thing. 
Well, it is if you're a Man U fan, because you, you might actually win the league, but not not in regards to politics. This feels very pointed. Oh, well, I, hey, hey. That's I don't a follow wild, football at all, so that reference went over my head. That's a wild accusation, Daniel Knowles. <laughs> yeah, Danny's a Man U fan. I'm just giving him some shit. Oh, okay. um, but no, you're right. So anyway, so the point I've been trying to get to is I felt like you gave me the ammo, and I went ah. out with the ammo. right. And I, sh- I was just shooting blanks everywhere. No, nothing was sticking. Nobody was going. Yes. So, I mean, what you've just said and the comments that you made in the first interview, I, I did hear you. And that's kind of where I want to come at it today. I kind of want to address those points. Okay. Because people have a set of ingrained assumptions in their thinking that is not letting them get past a certain point. And frankly, you're not going to be able to persuade everybody. Um, but I think we need to understand, because last episode, what I did is I explained that we are in trouble. I mean, there is effectively no way out of that. Um, I systematically went through each of the options. So what was it now? It was um, growth. Well, sure, there was let, let's, let's, let's do a TLDR. Let's yes. remind everyone what it was. Mm. But the interesting thing is since we've done that, everything's got worse and the banks <laughs> yes. are starting to collapse. But anyway, do you want to remind people what so, the issue yes. is? So let, let's go through it. So, so the summary is that for every pound the government collects in taxes, it spends pound thirty, And the debt element of that is going up all of the time and you're not getting anything for that. And effectively, we're in a spiral, a debt spiral. The reason being is because, um, let me see, so the, the total amount of debt that we have here in the UK is about 100% of GDP. So the coupon on the debt is about, um, well, four going on for 5%. So explain the coupon on the debt. Uh, so the interest like, payments. Yeah, yeah. So if you, want to, um, if you want to rectify that situation, because it's you know, 100% of GDP versus 100% of, of debt, it's, it's a, pretty much a one-to-one relationship. So the growth of the economy has to exceed the growth of the debt. But we're not going to get growth of greater than 4%. You know, we're, we're getting sort of typically, you know, in the 1.5% range. Historically, it's been about 3%. So would you say historically, if the government was accumulating debt below the growth rate, that's okay? That's Yes. So debt accumulation below the growth... Well, I, mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's okay because you kind of should be living within your means, but it's, it's manageable. But because we've got a series of, of bad assumptions in our economic thinking, in our, well, our societal thinking, our political thinking, we have got to the point where um, this has become sort of in-baked. Actually, you spoke to a, a US economics professor a couple of episodes after I was on, and he was able to explain the whole thing in about a sentence. I, I thought it was brilliant. I should have... Josh Hendrickson, maybe? Possibly. I, I, I forget his name. Yes, it was Josh Hendrickson. Yeah. yeah, he is the professor. So he explained it brilliantly. And I wish I had thought of this. And, and, and the way he summed it up was... Was this the insurance or was that you? Uh, the insurance? So he said since World War II, governments have become insurance providers. No, that was Dan. That was you. Um, so, well, uh, the, the, le, le, let me sort of paraphrase the way that he did it, because I, okay. I thought it was quite neat. So he said that effectively we are fighting a total war at this point in, in terms of our level of spending, but that total war is directed at... I mean, the thing with wars is they end. Um, but the total we're fighting is against old age, sickness, um, people who don't work. So it's basically insurance schemes. So it's a war that, that cannot end. So this spending is going on. The growth of the spending exceeds the growth of the economy, therefore debt spiral. And what I did, the, the, the TLDR with the first um, episode, although it would probably help if people just went and watched that because that would give the full explanation, but the, the TLDR of that is you can't get out of it. 
and I set out the reasons why. So growth, um, we can't exceed 4%. We're struggling to get 1.5 at the moment. Historically, growth rates have been about 3%, but we've got a lot of government, a lot of regulation, a lot of taxes, and that is sitting on uh, the creative output of the economy. So growth rates are low. Uh, the second one was tax the rich. And I didn't mess around there. I said, okay, let's just take all of the wealth from the, um, the Times Rich List 250. Just take the whole lot. And it came to whatever it came to, maybe 600-something billion. Yeah. And that pays for seven months of government spending. Yeah. And also, if you do that, they're all going to leave the UK. Yeah. And you wouldn't get it in the first place because, you know, people like Roman Abramovich, they are not keeping their money in the Lloyd's current account. Well, <laughs> I mean, it, it, all his money's in the uh, the government account right now, isn't it? Oh, okay. Well, maybe he's a bad example. But, okay, maybe... Yeah, I know what you yeah. mean. I know what you mean. Um, two, 220 on the Times, which is his Rishi Sunak. I mean, even he is probably not keeping all his money in a, in a Lloyd's current account. You know, that, that money um, is... That, that money will fly the moment there's any suggestion of sort of wealth seizures. He's 220. Is that yeah. his money or is his wife's money? Oh, probably the wife, I'd yeah. imagine. Yeah. Um, PM salary is good, but I don't think it's that good. Yeah. I can't imagine him uh, putting in place a policy whereby he would give away 100% of his money. Yeah. Well, you can't see Kira Starmer doing it either. So, right. I mean, no, nobody's going to do this. So, uh, and, and it's not like you can just take the next 250 and the next 250 because, you know, the, the 250 richest people in the country, the, the 250 under them, own a tiny fraction of what the top 250 own. Yeah. So if you wanted to try and address the debt problem by seizing wealth, I mean, you would be seizing wealth right down to your great auntie Edna, um, who's, got a, who's got a second cottage somewhere. I mean, it would, it would have to go all the way down. Um, another one was cut spending that we talked about. And that was probably the main focus. Of, uh, it was helpful to have three Brits on the, around the table when we were talking about that because it was, we were talking about things like cutting the spending of the NHS in half, effectively. And that's just not going to happen. You know, the NHS is basically religion in this country. So that doesn't work. And you would, have to, you would have to cut the operational budget of basically everything in government by half at this point to get the spending under control. Um, we, remind me, it was a, the target was $250 billion so that we could uh, have a balanced books and then pay 120 billion off a year and therefore clear the debt in 20 years. That, that sounds about right. the yeah. math. Yeah. Because we were increasing the national debt by about 120 billion a year. Yeah, so flip that the other way. Yeah. yeah. So if you cut by 120 billion, you tread water. And if yes. you cut by 250, you can pay it off over 20 years. Yes. At the moment, they're doing the opposite. They're increasing it. Yes, yeah. And so just remind people, why should they care about them increasing the national debt every year by $120 billion? Well, because eventually it's going to squeeze out everything else. Yes, exactly. And, uh, okay, I'll tell you, the, 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 the last one is going to be to, to print. So basically, um, you know, that, that's the, 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 uh, the error term in all of this is print the money. And, you know, then you will get a pension, but you won't be able to buy anything with it. Uh, and it will screw everybody else as well, everybody who's working. So, you know, financial assets will do somewhat better because they'll just be um, re-denominated by the, by the new larger money supply. But certainly if you're earning, um, you're going to get squeezed out by that. I thought about it a lot afterwards. And I thought, how, did you, how would you save 250 billion? And my starting point was halving the budget of the NHS. And yeah. I mean, I don't Try know, getting elected with that. I, but I think it would need cross-party consensus. And I think we're at a stage whereby cross-party consensus is needed for the constituents and for the country, 
And that's becoming a more important point mm-hmm. than the career goals or the power gains of politicians. Um, and the political hot potato of the yeah. NHS should not be used as a voting tool, but it is with people who really do not understand the situation we're in. That said, we're heading towards it with, you know, it used to be four hours, it used to be like the generally accepted wait time in the NHS. It's mm. now six, seven, eight hours, everyone's striking. Mm. Uh, I don't think we should be getting away from people having access to free healthcare. I think we should be getting away from everyone having access to free healthcare. And I think we should be doing things like in Ireland where my you know father lives, where they have everybody has to pay for a doctor's appointment. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of things like that. Interesting anecdote for you. I bumped into a uh, ambulance worker in a sh- local shop, and I was like, "Oh, I've got some questions for you." Anyway, we were talking about the problems. You know, when the strikes happened, yeah, Bedford wasn't striking. They weren't part okay. of the union that was striking. Right. They said the intake within their accident and emergency department fell off a cliff. And the wait time, I can't remember what she told me, the wait times were like one, two hours because everybody uh, everybody thought there was people striking so they weren't phoning up ambulances, they weren't going into the, they basically, they got rid of all the people who were going with anxiety, panic attacks and nothing issues. And so I think the thing is, is if you have a health service, health service with no friction, people mm. are going to overuse it. And so anyway, I th- my personal point is that maybe you only support it's kind of controversial, but you only support the people who absolutely need free healthcare, and most people should have an insurance. And then I think you go department by department, slashing and burning all this fucking wasteful shit they do. I think you can save it within government. Possibly, but you just can't get elected. No, of course. That's why cross-party consensus is needed. Yeah, but it doesn't feel like we're we're anywhere close to that because no. you play that game out. You know, let's say you know you go to the opposition, and you say you know we, we we both need to go forward and we both need to say that we we need to you know bring in these sort of radical cuts. You know, the the opportunity for the other team to renege on that and take the opposite view and win power, and then say, okay, I'll just kick the can down the road 10 years, I'll have my time in office and then it will be the problem with the next guy. And, and that's what they all think. They all, they're all trying to kick the can down the road. Of course. Now, the only, you know, take, take France at the moment. So they have kicked the can down the road on the pension thing for so long that it has now got to the point where the incumbents that are politicians are realising that this is going to break on their watch and therefore they need to do something. And that sort of explains the... Well, why Macron is pushing through something incredibly unpopular at this point because he knows the alternative is is worse. So, but it's a strange one, really, because those pension reforms won't affect. The, I mean, there's such a lag for that to come into place that it really won't affect him right now. Um, it might affect his ability to borrow, to keep uh, things okay. keep things on track right, right okay. now. So, so that's one thing. Okay, all of that said, mm-hmm. I have come to possibly see. Um, a growth route out of this. Okay, you're yeah. not going to crash the economy like Liz Truss. <laughs> no, this is this is actually. Um, are you using GPT, ChatGPT? A little bit. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of remarkable, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm, I've got this half. Like we've tried. Me and Danny have tried some things, right? Mm-hmm. For example, we could have said to ChatGPT, "Today I'm interviewing Dan Tubb. Here's some details on him." Give us 20 questions to ask him today. Mm-hmm. And you would get through it and you'd probably maybe use half, about half of them maybe, and the others you'd reword them. But probably not even half without seriously editing them. But it gives you a starting point. Or recently yeah. when I've been writing articles, 
I've got it to just build my structure. Well, it solves the blank page yeah, problem. Yeah, you know, it. It, it gets you off zero. Gets you off really zero. Fast. So yeah. I've had two articles I've written recently. I've said, do this for me. I've almost written the entire thing yeah. again afterwards, but it gave me the structure, yeah. which was so useful. But what were the things that you've done where you found it useful? Um, it's semi-useful for like writing show descriptions. Um, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not using it that much at the moment, but I think we will try and implement it more in the workflow. But I, I just asked it how the UK gets rid of its debt issue. Okay. All right. Fiscal discipline, economic growth, inflation, and structural reforms. There it's for. St- give me the, what's it saying on structural mm. reforms? Uh, the UK government can implement structural reforms to reduce the long-term cost of public services, such as healthcare and pensions. These reforms can include changes to the retirement age, the introduction of private sector competition in public services and the use of technology to increase efficiency. I mean, it's kind. That's like what I just said, what you're about to say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I've actually been using it for a lot more frivolous stuff than that. I mean, it, I, I find it's brilliant for, uh, what did I ask it last night? I asked it, ask me seven questions and then recommend seven movies. And it did that. And it does. So it's, 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 it's interesting. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. You want to do it, don't you? And, and, and I, know, yeah. I know that it did well because um, all of the movies that it recommended I had seen and I really liked. So I said, okay, that's great, but give me more um, obscure ones. And I had to do that a couple of times. And I ended up watching some Spanish time traveler movie or something. But it's, I mean, it's a really powerful tool. And, th- and then I thought, okay, I could use this now to recommend book series or, you know, you, you can use it for a whole bunch of, other, bunch of other things. But I think we're only scratching the surface for potentially what this AI technology can do. And actually, what I'm going to reference here is um, you've interviewed Kathy Woods, haven't you? Yeah. So Kathy Woods um, Wood. and her art singular. Yeah, Wood, yeah. There's only one of her. That's right. Um, every year she puts out a, a big ideas report. Yeah. And that's really interesting because what it looks at is the um, convergence of new technologies that are coming forward and and how they can reinforce each other. Now. We have had a period like that before. So at the early part of the 1900s, we got things like um, electricity, steam trains, um, uh, automobiles. So these technologies that could reinforce each other. And what they did was they increased the growth rate of the West. So the growth rate before that had been sort of, you know, sub 1%. And then after that, in the 1900s, we got a growth rate of 3%. Now, you might think, okay, well, what's the significance of a growth rate of 3% as opposed to, say, 1.5%? You know, does it really make that much difference? It makes a huge difference. So if you were to rerun the 1900s, take take the US and give it a growth rate. So it actually had, between 1900 and 2000, a growth rate of 3%. Rerun that again with a growth rate of 1.5%, and the US today would have an economy which is smaller than Brazil's. So it's compound growth. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, it's worse than that because the, the US has a higher population than Brazil. So GDP per head would be lower than Botswana today. So if a fairly small uh, change to the growth rate can have a significant effect down the line. Hmm. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Western growth rate has been 3% for a while. It starts to get... Um, more difficult to draw something meaningful from that post about 2000 because of the magic money tree effects that came along. Uh-huh. But as I talked about in the first podcast, you know, we're struggling around sort of one and a half percent now with the debt growing at, you know, four or five percent. Now, what Kathy's big ideas report looked at was the convergence of, you know, this time it isn't trains and electricity and automobiles, it is uh, 3D printing, it's AI, 
um, it's you know self-driving cars, it's um, the energy revolution stuff that's going on. There's a whole bunch of different trends which, if you combine them together, they think that you can get growth up to about six percent by 2030, and you can get growth up to uh, I think they said 10.5 percent by 2040. Okay. Now that is absolutely huge. And that compounded means you can start paying off oh, the yeah. debt. So again, let's go back to that experiment between 1900 and 2000. If you were to give the US a growth of not 3% during the 1900s, but 6%, the US would be 20 times wealthier than it currently is. Uh-huh. You would have an economy bigger than the rest of the world put together. Okay. So the only spanner in the works for this great idea you mm. have is AI is going to kill us all in three years' time. <laughs> tell, yes. tell them about the podcast you listen to. Well, it was a bankless podcast, which you know, are... Yeah arch rivals yeah it's um, basically right. what shitcoin did yeah okay I, I, I don't watch that one but good um but they had <laughs> this guy on who was basically like an ai expert who was saying that he ba- he's completely he, he thinks it's going to end the world in the next few years that it's out yeah. of the box there's no putting it back um it's game over effectively yeah i so i mean i'm, I'm certainly not an ai expert but I'm, I'm listening to what people are sort of saying on this and it's not obvious to me why that necessarily needs to be the case well, to be fair, I, I wouldn't be the right person to answer that, but we have got a guy coming on this week who's going to get into the AI stuff with was us. It, was it the guy that I mentioned to you? Yes, it was, yeah, Andy okay. Phillips, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this guy like that Danny's talking about, I haven't listened to it. Um, by the way, I'm only kidding with the bankless guy, so they're all right. Um, but um, he, he, is a, he is an expert on this, and he has become... He's kind of flipped negative because mm. he's realised where this can go, the speed of change, the speed at which it's learning. Yeah. And... The thing is, regulating AI is super difficult because mm. it can exist, like it can exist in a grey market. It can exist rogue, and, yeah. and that—that's his issue. I think he thinks we're just playing too fast and loose with this thing that we don't really know what it can be. And even Elon yeah. said that recently and signed the letter with Steve Wozniak, whoever his name is, and a thousand other people. And when you start to get it explained to us, is if AI decides it. Actually, no, we need these humans dead. They're fucking annoying. Let's get rid of them. If it makes that decision... There's very little we can do about it, yeah. Yeah, but it, but it only has to be a slight error rate for it to do that. Yeah. It has to be one bug, one thing that's wrong. You connect... I mean, this is me. This is me talking about the connecting AI with CRISPR. Do you know about CRISPR? Yes. Yeah. Connect AI with CRISPR, and they're like, eh, like let's turn up the... Uh, let's get a bit of the vir- uh, virality of COVID, but let's get the... Uh, uh, the, it, the death rate of it, Ebola, yeah. and then it, let's it, just sprinkle it around. If the AI gets smart enough and it decides we have to go, then we, we're gone. Yeah. And there's, there's not much we can do about it. But if it goes the other way and it decides to help us, then uh, there could be a very bright future, future ahead. I kind of look at it, it it's, it's, like, it's like having a kid. It's like, it's like giving birth to a new consciousness. You, I mean, you don't know how your son is going to grow up to think of you 20 or 30 years later. You might think you're a great guy, or you might decide... You've got to go. Well, that that's one way yeah. of saying it. Also, it might think of us as an ant's nest outside. Yeah. And when I go to an ant's nest, I'm like, kill those fuckers. Let's drown them. Let's get rid of them. They're yeah. annoying. Rather than go, hmm, how could those ants help me? Well, they could carry the leaves away. Like, I'm so, so it might just exterminate us. We yeah. might all be dead. Yeah, it might do. Maybe that's it. But it, if... al- it also offers us the possibility to get us out of the debt hole that we're in. Okay. So... <laughs> There are possible upsides, even though we might all die. Well, if we're all dead, the debt hole... Yeah, I suppose that's another way of solving yeah, the problem. Yeah, there's no debt hole. Maybe that's yeah. the solution. <laughs> yeah, fuck. All right, come on. Hit me with it. So, yeah, so so that growth um, 
is a potential revision of, of what I put forward in the first podcast that potentially we could get another growth. Now, I kind of have mixed feelings about that. I mean, it'd be fantastic if we did get um, the sort of growth that Kathy is talking about with the convergence of these different ideas. On the other hand, it does bail our current elites out of the hole that they've dug for us. Yeah, but that's the way it works. It's a bit like, have you just seen the new IMF loan that went to Sri Lanka that's announced today? A three billion loan. That. Basically, see if you can find it, Danny. It's mm -hmm. a new three billion loan to Sri Lanka, which which requires ongoing austerity okay. for the peasants. Yeah. But it's a ba it's a bailout for the elites, and it's austerity for yeah. the peasants. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting. The um, the US are always like this, aren't they? They're like, um, you know, you can't just print money. No, no, no. You you have to have austerity. You need to cut, and then they go and print another trillion dollars. Yeah, and by the so, way, give us your give us your resources. Yeah, did you ever listen to the show me with Alex at Gladstein about economic imperialism? I might have done. Yeah, it was a fascinating show, and okay. he, I think Sri Lanka or no, it was Bangladesh with the yeah. example. But he just talked about this. Essentially, the IMF and the World Bank they just really enforce economic imperialism across the rest mm. of the world just to steal their resources. And one of the things that I've noticed that they've been talking about lately is is copying the China model. So the China model is we're going to give you loans, which you probably can't pay off, and then th those are going to be secured against land and natural resources. Ports. Yeah, and yeah. they're effectively just acquiring all of these assets when, when the debt defaults. Mm. Um, I have seen some papers, I can't remember which one now, but the, but the, uh, the West has been looking at that model and thinking, well, that's quite clever, we should do that. So I'm wondering if the Sri Lankan um, loan that you're talking about that came out today, that's probably got some of those provisions in it. It's, you know, we're going to give you this money, but yeah, when you, when you do default on it, we're going to end up owning... Well, who's we, though? Because the IMF, right, okay, yeah. as a, a US-controlled institution, it probably says it's independent, but I mm. can imagine its uh, head offices it's are... It's based in, in D.C., I'm pretty yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, but like the UN being in New York. Um, whereas China is a nation-state, they literally yeah. can just take ownership. Mm. But anyway, okay. I, I mean, I don't know the details of this particular, and I haven't seen it, but um, I'm wondering if, if elements of that are going uh, to be brought in. So, yeah, so we know we're in a mess. We know it's very difficult to climb out of it. Um, potentially one of the only ways that we could grow a way out of it is the AI, which might kill us. So on more conventional grounds, I think it's probably worth talking about uh, how did we get into this problem? Because the last episode was all about we're in it, and how we're not going to get out of it. Mm -hmm. But how did we get into it in the first place? And for that, um, I kind of need to call out the group that is behind this that led us into that situation in the first place. Okay. I'm referring to the boomers. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. Have we got one in the room? Is he, a, is he a boomer? What, 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 what's, the, be boomer. What's, what's the... I, I think it's between like born between something like 19... 50 about there, maybe the late 40s, and... Can you check it? Mm hmm We might have a boomer in the room with us. Yeah, 46 to 64. He's in. We've got a boomer here. All <laughs> it's right. all your fault. Yeah. Thanks, Jerry. <laughs> all right, so tell me about the boomers. So I am not saying that there is anything wrong with the boomers as people. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that, um, you know, Jupiter was in alignment with Saturn and it, in, it, in their birth years, and it happened to produce a particularly malevolent class of people. It's nothing like that. It's just that they were a very large generation going into a very small world. Um, and what that did is it gave them a mindset which was true for most of their life, which is continuing to be implemented, which is at the root of a lot of these problems. So what do I mean by that? So 
the boomers, what they saw is they saw constant workforce expansion over their life. And that was initially driven by themselves because they were a very large generation. So as they came into the workforce, they grew it. They all went out, bought a suit, a car, a house. Um, they expanded the economy as they went. And then even when that began to crap out, then you got the effects of globalization. China was brought into the workforce and India was brought into the global workforce. So throughout their working lives, they have seen this um, constant expansion. And when you get that constant expansion, it becomes very easy to uh, implement pay-as-you-go government policies. So things like healthcare, pensions, um, welfare state, all that kind of stuff. They also got the digital revolution. Yeah, that's slightly different. So I think that's, this is where it started to unravel. Okay. So, so this is probably the argument that um, Jeff Booth would make. So he makes it very well. So before, before I address the unravelling of that, the other thing is that they operated under an economic model, which if I were to oversimplify it, I'd just describe it as more. So always, there was always more. So it was another factory, another worker, another product line. It was all about that expansion. It's more, more, more all the time. And the way that Jeff Booth describes that transition was looking at the case study of Blockbuster Video. Mm -hmm. So um, it was always one more store, one more video title, one more employee, that constant expansion. And then Netflix came along and they reduced the marginal cost of video distribution down to zero. And all of a sudden that capital expansive model no longer worked. We had changed from more to more for less. Okay. So efficiency. So entering the digital age, it sort of flipped that around. So the boomers, they experienced that constant workforce expansion. They operated under a capital expansion model of the economy. And that is very supportive of um, fiat money, expanding fiat money. So one of the problems you will have, um, you know, criticising um, fiat money is, you know, you can say, well, this will change in 1971. Uh, and they can push back and say, well, yeah, but it, it's worked for the last 50 years. I mean, it's worked. I mean, I've, it's worked for me. I've got a house. I've got a car. Everything seems to be fine. Why is it that you're telling me that fiat money can no longer work for the next 50 years? Well, because if you actually look at it, it's worked while we've slowly eroded yeah. the middle class. Yeah. But you can see why a lot of people are going to feel superficially that it's worked. Yeah, because they think they have more. It, yes. So we had, I made a film about inflation with Dominic Frisbee and he talked about this and he said, what one salary used to provide, Quite. two yeah. salaries now can't provide. Mm. So we've gone to a stage where both parents tend to be working mm. and they're still living to their limit of their budget, trying to have a house, have a car and have their holidays and people are getting squeezed. And he said, this is essentially a squeezing of the middle class. Mm. And he said the best way to destroy society is to, uh, is to destroy the middle class. I think he said it was a Stalin or a Lenin thing. But he talked to me through that, and he talked about the, infl the inflationary increase in prices of things mm. that, uh, the kind of day-to-day -day things like cars, houses, whatever. And, it, and it's very obvious when you look back several decades, but you can understand why the people who are in it, I mean, they think, well, my house is now worth a lot more than I paid for it. Yes. It's very easy to get caught up in, oh, this has been, this has been a good thing, thing for me, and you don't tend to notice what you've lost until you compare it to perhaps the next generation yeah. who, you know, um, husband and wife do both need to work. They both need to, you know, put the child into childcare and, you know, turn up at the office or whatever it is. Hmm. So the other thing that I think is more relevant here is the um, 
the government response to this. So the boomers wanted to be compassionate to their elderly, so they introduced um, a generous pension system. They introduced, um, well, they didn't quite introduce it themselves, but they expanded the, the rollout of the NHS and all of these other sort of insurance provisions. Now, when you are a very large generation supporting a small generation before you, that's very easy to do. So you can see why the government insurance programmes have expanded to the point that they have. Now, of course, while they're doing that, you know, they have normal levels of self-interest. They are wanting to... They've got half an eye on, yes, we're being generous to the elderly today, but we are... Um, we've also got half an eye on this will be nice for us when we retire as well. Mm. So then, so then I'm not completely letting them off the hook, um, but it is, it is primarily a demographic change that have led them into this situation. This show is brought to you by Ledden. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages... Ledden's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With recent events in the lending market, Ledden demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach as they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation. Ledden only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up today, we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security, and is the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time to take your security a little more seriously. Because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, it couldn't be easier. I've been a Ledger user since 2017 and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. The Nano S to me is the best hardware device on the market. So if you're not managing your private keys, please do go and check out the Nano S or the Nano S Plus now. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also today, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost excess renewable energy and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. And they are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us. So they're such a great fit for what Bitcoin did. We are going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films to our live events and they're even sponsoring my football team, Real Bedford. So I'm really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. Now, if you want to find out more about Iris Energy, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y dot C-O. And when you say boomers, uh, I, is it unfair to pick on the people who've benefited from it and this is really the fault of those who set policy? Yeah, I mean... Because I mean, we all want more. Yes. We've all worked, we all work hard for more. You know, Danny works hard, I work mm. hard. Everybody works, you work hard. We all work hard for more. 
know, we all want a bigger house or, a, yeah. you know, yeah, we all want that. So is it not really the fault of the bankers, the central bankers and the policymakers who have led us into this uh, uh, desire for constant growth, ever-expanding fiat money to support mm. growth at all costs, elimination of the boom, or the bus part of the boom and bust cycle? Mm. Is it that who we should be blaming? Yeah, I think I think that's perfectly fair. I mean, there is. Um, I mean, the mess we're in uh, is there's a there's a lot of blame to go around. I'm just making the point that you know we have ended up with these enormously expensive social insurance um, level of spending which has been facilitated by all those things that you mentioned, the central banking, the fiat money. Okay, and, and this uh, is why there's so much fear about population decline, which is evidently yeah. happening. Yeah. I mean, I think, what did I read? Japan, they're, they're looking at a 25% fall in the size of the population over a certain period. We're not going to have enough workers to pay for everything yeah. for the retirees. You, you can see why all governments, including the ones who claim to be against it, are in practice so in favour of immigration. Yes. Because they they know that they need to get sort of more workers into the system because the system has been designed to only function when there is more. Well, driving growth mm. requires a, a growing population of workers yeah. as well. Yeah. Or AI bots. <laughs> yes, possibly. Possibly. Okay. So, you know, th this has led to an extraordinary level of, of, of boomer wealth. Um, they saw significant real-time, uh, real-level ha housing increase. So this is this is beyond the rate of inflation. Um, real house prices has has increased significantly. They saw their wages rise every year, uh, and that went up until I believe the the the, the people born in about 1975, when those guys came into the workforce, it it started to turn the other way. And, and those, and so we've now had about thirty years or, or so of, of real-time um, wages decline. But nevertheless, this was sort of baked into the assumptions. Mm -hmm. um, pensions is a big element of this as well. So a lot of the boomers had uh, defined benefit, so so yeah, defined benefit uh, pension schemes, final salary pension schemes. Yeah. And and again, this this goes back to them that they they sort of brought this stuff in, wanting to be generous to the people above them by bringing in this sort of pension stuff, but with half an eye on when they would, would want it themselves. And they started to make those through policy more and more um, attractive. So they, they did things like um, protect the benefits of, of widows um, if, if, if the main character on the, on the pension were to die early, uh, protecting the right of early leavers. And what it's done is it made the, um, those pension contributions um, quite, uh, well, excessive really. So today, um, a lot of companies who have had in the past a defined benefit pension scheme, the vast majority of their contributions is going to that class of pensions, even though they don't offer it to, when they haven't offered it for many years now, to new entrants who are getting a defined contribution scheme. So um, a lot of wealth comes from that as well. And then there's benefit of things like um, the NHS as well. If you wanted to hit the demographic um, jackpot in life, you wanted to be born in 1956 because you sort of crested the wave of getting, um, putting the least into the system while getting the most out of it as well in terms of the, uh, well, the NHS and other benefits that you got from the back of that. Now, what it's led to is that the people who are in their 70s today are on average 40% wealthier than people who are in their 70s just 10 years ago. So that's, it is a, uh, boomers have, have got a... Compound growth. <laughs> <laughs> 
because you expect to get wealthier as you get older. Yeah. But it's it's well in excess of um, other you know other cohorts from 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 other decades. Right. So you've got that big concentration of expand of expansion, and and what it's given them is it's given them a whole set of faulty assumptions, which when you apply those today, um, are effectively breaking the whole system for us. So it's that constant workforce expansion. It's the expansionary money works for them. Um, I think they um, have got away with fairly weak family units in the West um, that you don't see in perhaps Asian countries. So that's worth coming back to. Other assumptions, they've often assumed that old is the same thing as being poor. So if you looked at policymakers in, say, the 80s and 90s, if they wanted to do something for poor people, they basically just did something for pensioners because they were effectively one and the same thing. You didn't really even need to means test it. So a lot of, a lot of a, um, well, I mean, everything from like free bus passes to sort of free entry to, to events and stuff like that. It is no longer the case that being old equals being poor. In fact, if anything, the um, retirees' disposable income now matches the, the average of, of working people. Wow, and if you and if you go if you go lower down the income band, so that say the poorest twenty percent of pensions versus the poorest twenty percent of working, they're significantly above. So that's been um, a part of it as well, and so that has got me then thinking about the whole range of assumptions which our society is working under. Now, if you've got the wrong set of assumptions, when you try and solve a problem, you are going to end up making it worse because you've got the wrong assumptions going into this. Now, so far, I've been, you know, very generous towards the boomers. And, you know, yes, they have sort of led us to this point through um, policy preferences and voting preferences and everything else has gone along with it. And I, I certainly do take your point that um, there are other influences as well, the central banking influence behind that as well. So it's a combination of things of voting for um, politicians who have done this, but also the, the toleration of that kind of thing has had a big effect. So I'm not blaming them as people. It is primarily a demographic effect. However, there is one thing um, that does rankle me, and that is for the overwhelming majority of boomers, uh, the TV is a primary sense organ. So try telling a boomer that something that um, they're, they're told on TV is not the case. You know, you can't, you can't make a boomer believe um, in something if, it's, if he hasn't seen it on TV first. Now, hashtag not all. There are exceptions to this. But it is a remarkable hold that it has over a large segment of the, of the voting population. That, I mean, I think you've described it yourself. I think you talked about, you put something on your Facebook page. And, yes. uh, uh, about CBT, but that was about CBDC. Okay. And yeah. someone blocked me. Yes. Yeah. Because you were saying that something that was different from, from effectively what they'd seen on TV, and there's just that refusal to accept anything of it. Mm. So you've got all of these mechanisms that are reinforcing these, these set of bad assumptions. Well, it was quite interesting. The other day I went to get a cup of coffee in the morning at the local co-op, and uh, there was a, somebody in front of me. He must have been about yeah. 75, and he did something that I've not seen somebody do for a while. He bought three newspapers. So right. he had, he had a, I think it was a Times, a Mail, I think it was the Mirror or the Star. Yeah. But that was something when I was a kid, I, every adult, like I yeah. remember, you know, going oh, get my I used granddad. to do that years ago. Yeah. My granddad used to send me up to get the papers. And, yeah. you know, I remember that, you know, you would read the paper. I don't know anyone who reads a newspaper anymore, but he had gone by habit to get his yeah. newspapers. 
And I don't read the papers because they're full of shit. They've all got the same ideas. They've all got the same assumptions. They're all operating on the same model. But it's all propaganda. Like, it's, yes. that's not conspiracies. It's just yeah. fucking bullshit. Yeah. So I don't read that stuff anymore. But I was like, oh, he's still got that. God, he's reading. I was in, like, in my head, I was thinking, you're reading that and believing what you're reading. Mm. That's, that's setting you the tone for your opinions. Yeah. Well, TV and the newspapers. Yeah. It, it is yeah, re- one reinforcing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the same, it's the same ruling elite. Um, is the, the Westminster bubble, we would call it here, or, or whatever the equivalent yeah. in the US is. But yeah, so we are we are locked into this. And because we are trying... So because the, the system is obviously not working, and they are trying to fix it with a set of assumptions that no longer line up with, well, the underlying reality, you've, you've moved from a point where politicians are trying to solve problems on behalf of the public to now politicians are trying to solve the problem of the public. And you see this all the time now. It, it's like they're, they're always thinking about, okay, how can we... It, it's like they're thinking, we've got these bloody pros and they're doing the wrong things. How can we make them do the right thing? It is all geared at sort of changing our behaviour and trying to bring it in line because the system that has been... Well, the system that we are now living in, this, you know... The economic shift has just moved to describe it to a more digital age. God damn it, Dan. You're sounding like a conspiracy theorist here. <laughs> it doesn't line up. So, anyway, so that got me thinking about, okay, what are... Well, let, let's give me some examples on that. Or oh, the listeners some examples of where they're trying to control the public. Give me some examples. I mean, I've got my own. Yeah. Well, I mean... For example, the... Um, just the last thing that sort of I noticed was the, for example, the electric car thing, where they're sort of going to ban them. Now, I don't think that's necessary. What do you mean, ban? Well, they're going to ban um, internal combustion engine cars by... From 2040, was it? 2035, I think it was. Was it diesels first? and then? Oh, I can't remember. But it was yeah. only a couple of years ago they were trying to push people into, into diesel. Now, I actually quite like electric cars. I think they are... Um, I think they're... I, I think they are on parity at the moment and they're probably going to be better within a couple of years and because they're on their own rights curve so uh when with with manufacturing techniques you tend to get a consistent rate of improvement or a consistent reduction in cost of these items as you produce more of them so rights law i believe for, for for cars was something like every time you have a cumulative doubling of the amount of cars that you produce you get a 15 percent cost reduction that can't happen in internal combustion engines anymore because there are so many cars out there. Let's say there's about 4 billion cars of uh, internal combustion engines are being produced, or maybe it's 6 billion, I don't know, whatever, whatever the number is. You're not going to get a cumulative doubling at this point that gets you the extra 15% cost reduction. Whereas you are getting that with electric cars. It is a, it is a different technology, and we are yeah. seeing a fairly consistent price decrease. So within a few years, you're going to get... Um, to electric cars, which are going to be cheaper than internal combustion engine cars to buy and to run. But nevertheless, it is an example of where they can't help themselves but be a bit heavy-handed about the way they're doing it and they're just sort of bringing down the ban haver, which is just going to antagonise an awful lot of people, which isn't probably necessary to do because people would make that switch on its own. So I, th- I, think, there are, I think there are examples that are more... Uh, yeah, that was, the, that was the first one that popped into my yeah, head. But what, think, what are you thinking? Well, so yeah, you're talking about the problem of the public. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about Extinction Rebellion, who I find particularly annoying. Mm. I think their strategy is particularly annoying to glue themselves to roads, and I think a lot of their uh, 
their thoughts or ideas with regards to uh, a policy with regards to uh, fuel and oil is uh, naive and not well thought out. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I support their right to protest and I think at times you need civil disobedience. You need that option, you need that ability. Bear with me. Mm. It's the expansion of uh, the laws regarding protesting yes where i can't remember the detail Preeti patel started it during covid the first time which were i think were particularly uh how would i put it evil let's say oppressive right yes to the point where democracy the democracy was a pillar of democracy is the ability to protest you take away the ability to protest you're matching the, the ability to protest in red square and the, in, the interesting thing for me is that all of the stuff that Extinction Rebellion is doing is already illegal and they can already be arrested for it. Yeah. And they generally are after they've held up the traffic for about six hours. Yeah. And you sort of see the police turn up and effectively protect them because you get with the white van drivers, they get out their car and it's like, well, just bloody move them then. Mate. Yeah, they drag you, them they, off the road. Yeah, and the police are basically protecting the protesters and they sort of let them sit there for several hours and then once the point has been made, then the police arrest them and take them away. Have you heard the full conspiracy with regards to Extinction Rebellion? Go on then. They, so the full conspiracy I, I was uh, referred to, this might have been you anyway, <laughs> uh, that if you look at the, their talking points and their arguments... Oh, I did say this to you. They yeah, very yeah. much match the government. Yeah. So their, their website is full of quotes from government scientists, the way I put it. Yeah, so they're inspiring yeah. them to protest and then expand the laws. Yes. I, I don't buy that link. I think, I think the government's being yeah, more reactionary. Point, I guess the point I'm making is you don't need new laws to deal with what they're doing. No. But they are being used in order to bring in the public order bill, which can then go after the people who have protested in the past in ways that has been entirely legal. So take, for example, the, uh, the, the anti-lockdown protests that yeah. occurred. Now, those guys didn't block roads. They did it in central London. They gave notice of their plans. They sort of walked down Whitehall. I suppose, they, I suppose they, by sheer volume, they, they blocked the traffic on Whitehall, but it's not a major true route or anything, you know, walking past Downing Street. Um, they're giving themselves the power to go after those guys who are doing something which at the moment is entirely legal. So they're, so they're using them as an excuse in order to expand power. But I mean, you're seeing that more broadly is that governments all over the West now are equipping themselves with tools in order to go after the masses. CBDCs. Yeah. Well, so here's another example. Let's go straight with Bitcoin. Okay. The opposition to Bitcoin that's coming from whether it's I don't know, within DC, mm. particularly someone like Elizabeth Warren, or whether it's coming from uh, the ECB, mm. whether it's coming from you know, UK government, that is a problem of the public. Mm. Because these are people who are so fed up with the fiat financial system, screwing them, they said, aha, this is lifeboat here. And that's something yep. I want to use because you're fucking with my money. Yes. And then they're trying, that's a problem with the public. I, I should have gone to the financial system first, actually, because there are much better examples yeah. there. So, yeah, in the US, they're bringing in that um, any transaction over $600 gets the IRS's attention. You yeah. Know, the, the financial system is being used as a sort of surveillance tool. As, well, it's, it's being used as the police now, effectively. Yeah, the Pentagon yeah. can lose billions. The government can waste trillions. But you spend over $600? I, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you an interesting example, actually. So... Um, I looked at the World Economic Forum risks report that came out at the last conference. Now, um, they list out top risks over, I think, the medium and the long term. 
And a lot of those things on those two lists were stuff that they can have absolutely no effect on. It's, it's basically climate change stuff. You know, they, there's nothing that the World Economic Forum can do. So I think that's flim-flam. You get rid of those. What's on those lists? Top item on both medium and long term is basically the public pushing back against the WEF policies. <coughs> yeah. <laughs> now, we, I mean, I, I, I'm one of those guys who actually sits and watch some of the talks coming out of the WEF and have done for years. For years now, they've been talking about increased civil unrest, pushback against, I mean, they, they, they paint it in flowery language, and I can't remember the way they describe it now, but basically, people are going to push back against what we are doing is overwhelmingly what they're saying. So we know that their top concern is pushback from the public, and we know that what they are doing is they are equipping themselves with tools that makes that pushback much harder. So I think the 2018 Davos event was headlined on digital IDs. And coming out of that was um, a policy paper that was basically homework for national governments around the world. And if you just go, if, I mean, if you, you can do it here in the UK, but you can do it in any Western country. You type in um, a title similar to, to, the, to the WEF plan and you'll find a, a .gov paper, which is implementation of, of digital IDs. Um, and then there's other policies which are perhaps WEF adjacent, um, such as the 15-minute city thing, where um, cities are being divided up into zones. And the, and the selling point of this is you can have everything close to you. Um, so you can have all of your leisure and work and whatever else within 15 minutes of your home, and that's great. But they're not actually delivering those things. What they're actually delivering is cameras and barriers. And then you've talked about the central bank digital currency as well. So you start to combine these things together... And what have you got? You've got governments which now have tools like more cameras and barriers to stop people moving around. You know, you try doing something like a truckers protest when, you know, there's barriers that they can raise at any time. Now, at the moment, I know in places like Oxford, they're basically just big planters. But, you know, in, in 10 years' time, that will be a proper metal barricade and all the rest of it. Um, you think? Yeah. Well, you think it's going gonna, it's gonna to just be little plant pots for... The next 10 years, this is to get us used to it. Okay. Yeah, I would take the other side of the bet. I don't think we're there yet, but I can see a scenario. Oh, it's a process, yeah. Yeah. Well, again, just for that one, go and look at what... So I think the organisation behind that is C40. Um, I think I'm getting that right, which is a collaboration of the 40 biggest cities, although it's, it's a lot more than that. It's over 100 cities now. And just look at the policy documents that they put out. You know, they are very clear at what they are looking to achieve which is basically a future where people don't drive, where people um, consume considerably less. I mean, they even talk about the, the items of clothing that people might buy in the future. So, you know, none, none of this is a conspiracy. You can just go and look at the policy yeah, documents. Yeah. They, they, they put it out there. Um, the WEF does the same thing. They, they put out what they want the future to look like. Of course, none of this applies to the people who actually turn up to the WEF. They're not going to live like that, but the rest of us are going to live like that. So you, you start giving governments the tools of, cameras and barriers through 15-minute cities and the way that that's rolled out, the digital IDs, and if it comes a, a central bank digital currency, I mean, you won't need police after that point because, you know, try protesting when your money doesn't work when you're more than 15 minutes from, from where you live. Oh, you will still need police if that's true. Yeah, but the, I think the agree to organise will be... I think we're still a long way yeah. from this. Like, I know it exists within China, yeah, and I know that there is, like, a trajectory of heading in that direction, yeah. but I think... I think the freedoms that we have yeah. here in the West allow for us to protest. 
You won't get away with that in France, and they're not getting away with it in France. Macron's... Uh, Doesn't mean they're not going to try. Oh, no, of course they're going to try, but I think that's the great thing about a democracy is that you have the ability to push back. You can't push back in China. They tried in Tiananmen Square, and they tried in Tiananmen Square, and they murdered thousands of people. You know, they, they you try, you can't in Russia, you can't protest. They, mm. you know, your options are being poisoned, being jailed, or being tortured. Mm. But here, we don't do those. We haven't gone that far. We don't do that. So, therefore, you can push back. And you're seeing that in France. They will not get away with it. Macron's approval rating is at the lowest ever. Mm. Okay. If you tried the same here, people will push back. They will protest. You've seen it in Amsterdam. You've seen it in Holland where people have pushed back again with the farmers. I mean, isn't the, isn't the party that just won the last vote in uh, Holland, weren't they yes. the farmers' party? So you've got, you've got those pushbacks. I, like I say, I think they will try, and mm. I don't think they will win, but they, will, they might have small wins. So I don't, like the end game you're painting, I don't see happening. Um, I'm describing a process rather than an endgame, I yeah, think. Yeah. So when you're saying they're going to have small wins, but, I mean, that's how it works, isn't it? Is, is they take an inch and then they take another inch and they, they, you basically just keep doing that until you're, you know, a couple of miles down the road and it's like people suddenly wake up to it and they start getting a bit riotous and then they, they come back a few inches. Or you end up and then they carry on again. You end up, the history will tell you you end up mm. in full revolution. Yeah, I mean, people in the West are fairly comfortable, so possibly we could get to something like that. I'm more describing that they are, they are trying to score these incremental games. They are trying to equip themselves with tools and laws that enable them to solve the, the problem of the public because they are increasingly recognising that there isn't enough pie to be divided by everybody. And not whether this is evil or not, but do you think... It, is this organically the way this just happens because of the way the debt is spiralling and it's the way of managing it and these are naive people who think they're doing the right thing rather than evil people thinking, ha, 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 I've got control over you. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think it's nefarious evil or anything like that. So, I mean, I, I, I described how it came about um, with the boomers through basically compassionate reasons. It was a large generation in a small world and they wanted to be compassionate to their elders and therefore they brought in these insurance policies. But once you then get to the point where that large mass of people are no longer paying but are the beneficiary, those insurance policies don't work. You know, that, that was born of nothing more than compassion for, for elders um, and, a, and a misappreciation of what the demographics would do to that. When it comes to the politicians, again, I don't think there is anything nefarious behind this. I think the majority of politicians are thinking their own mind that they're doing the right thing. And it's increasingly getting to the point where they realise that they're going to need to push back against the public, but they think they're doing it for the public's own good because they are trying to protect this existing system at all costs. And in their own mind, they're thinking, well, this system gives us stability and order. Um, it gives us a justice system. It gives us, um, it gives us well, healthcare. It gives us all, all of these things, and therefore I must protect this system at all costs. And I think very few of them are looking at the system as a whole, including the money system in that. When it comes to nefarious actors above government level, because I certainly don't think that governments, governments are the key decision makers. The key decision makers are well above them. Um, who am I talking about? So, it, well, it is going to be international bodies. It's going to WHO, be... WHO, UN, World to, Bank. To a certain extent. So, I'm not, I, I, I can evidence it. So, if we go back to, say, um, the pandemic response which you know I'm highly, highly critical of. Mm -hmm. But 
you look at the House of Commons, um, the select committee reports that got in Dominic Cummings and, and Matt Hancock, and you look at what they actually said on the record as to, as to how they were making their, their decision-making process, it was, uh, well, Bill Gates' name was mentioned like every five minutes. There was hours and hours of testimony, and he was being brought up all the time. Why was he being brought up all the time? He was being brought up because... Um, well, his foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, had done a lot of thinking about how to respond to By the this. way, is that just the, the Bill Foundation, though? <laughs> I think her name's still on it, I'd imagine. Right. Um, but, but, yeah, anyway, they were referring to them all the time. Now, the reason is, is because we have got ourselves to a point where government doesn't do their own thinking they refer to um, external groups who have put together sort of policy proposals and policy packages. Yeah, and we know this because of the influence that the WEF has had on the Trudeau government. Mm. Oh, th that, that's very obvious on, yeah. on that particular case. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I, that's... But, they, but I didn't want the WEF even planting like, people to work within government. I'm almost certain of, of yeah. this. See if you can find that, Danny. The reason I bring up the pandemic response is because it's all on record in those select committee reports that you can you can watch on YouTube. The fact is that they were not driving policy themselves. They were basically getting it fed to them from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And you can see, you can go and watch this on YouTube, those yeah. select committee reports. They were being told what to do. Now, my point is, that doesn't just happen in pandemic response. That happens in basically every level of government. Politicians, their job is to look good, respond to news flow on the day, and be hopefully charismatic enough to get elected. They don't have the capacity to to start thinking through policy. So, th so the way this works is not that you know you're in opposition and you spend all your time in a dark room writing out a ideology or a policy plan or anything like that. All you do is focus on trying to get yourself elected. And then once you're in, you then turn to the people who give you policy solutions and policy packages that you can then implement. What do you find on that, by the way? Not a lot. And from a quick look, I can't see anything conclusive. Mm. Okay. Maybe I heard that in an interview or something. I mean, I think you're right. Yeah, um, it wouldn't surprise me, but <clears throat> I can't find anything at the moment. No. Okay. So, I mean, it, I mean it's, it's very obvious in, say, the US where... You know, I, I, I don't know how long ago it was that congressmen and senators actually sat down and wrote legislation themselves. That probably happened at one point. Well, we know it isn't because they work with staffers. So we know well, that if you way they want to interview a politician, you've got to interview, influence the staffers and the staffers. So I, th I think that has passed as well. So then it would have been the staffers who were putting the um, policy together. And I'm pretty sure uh, it is the case, because I've, I've heard this, I can't remember where I heard it, but I've heard it from multiple sources now, that the way it's done now is, is the lobbyists write the legislation. Well, but I think it goes through the staff. I think the lobbyists yeah, target, the staffers. target the staffers. Yeah, they, they probably read it and make the odd change here and there, but effectively the, the, the policy has all been outsourced to um, lobbying groups. And we know this on the Bitcoin front because mm. Alex DeFries, who is a compulsive liar who misrepresents Bitcoin and the mining industry uh, relentlessly, he, is, he has been cited in papers that come out of government departments. We know that, don't we? We had that with Nick Carter, didn't we? Yeah. That report from the science... From the White House. It was a Department of Science at the White House. Yeah, it? Department of Science at the White House. Like, they were quoting DeFries, who is a compulsive liar. 
So we know mm. that. So we know you can you can influence at that level. And and I and I don't think it's nefarious particularly. Well, um, how I mean, how much time? Have you, like, the, go to the Elizabeth Warren website. So we were looking at this the other day. Mm. Or oh no, I wrote to Elizabeth Warren the other day. That was okay. it. And if you go to contact her, yeah. Right. Then there's a big list of things like that she's that you can contact her for. Yeah, or it was, it was, or maybe it was the bit where she was fundraising for. Like this list was contact me about right. everything from gun laws to cryptocurrencies to banking. I'm, I'm telling you, there may have been a hundred things on this list. Okay, now there is zero chance Elizabeth Warren is an expert on these subjects. Okay, yeah. she has to have the talking points on them all. Yeah, she. So it's only natural that so, she needs a team behind her. I, I think her job is twofold. It is it is to raise money to get elected and to get elected. Yeah. And the staffers will be filtering a lot of this stuff through. But again, they don't have the capacity to be putting um, legislation together. It is going to be coming from lobbyists, ultimately. And they'll be testing it as well. Yeah. What works, what's that? Have you found that list? Yeah. I'm, I've, I don't know exactly what you mean, but there's, there's this all over the website. But when you say share your opinion, um, it just gives you a form. Ah, oh, on contact. To, yeah. Um, I found it the other day when I wrote to... Wrote yeah, I'm not sure exactly her. the bit you mean. Yeah, yeah anyway, the, the point being is I looked through it and I thought, how can you be an expert on all of these things? Yeah. You have to have staffers and you have to have people feeding stuff to you. And staffers maybe are like, well, I've got too much to do, so I need somebody to feed this to me. Yeah, and now, now when I say I don't think it's nefarious, I don't think in their mind it's nefarious. I think I think the outcome of it is. Yes. Because, you know, what these... So, so again, right, let's go back to the, um, the pandemic, the awful pandemic response. And we know how cynical and bad it was now because we've seen the WhatsApp messages that yeah. come out. So even, even when they knew they were wrong, they um, didn't want to row back on any of this stuff because they thought it might cost them electorally. Exactly. It was all about saving face after a certain point. But, you know, to go back to the point about the, how the policy came in in the first place and that, that referring to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation constantly that, that Hancock and Dominic Cummings did, in their minds, they are following best advice. So they are doing the right thing. And you know what? Like, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has a good track record in supporting the eradication of certain diseases. I mean, didn't they eliminate? Haven't they? Didn't they eliminate polio around the world? And they've helped massively with like malaria and things like that. Yeah. Okay. I know. You know. I know a lot of people are quick no. to jump to Bill is evil and blah blah blah. And he went to Epstein Island, but they have yeah, done I, good things. And, and I don't think they can both be true as well. Yeah, they yeah. can both be true. They've objectively done good things, and perhaps even Bill thinks he's doing the right thing. Yes. I, th I think that in, in his mind he thinks he is doing the right thing. But the point is, is that the solutions to the problems are getting moved further and further away from the public mm. who vote for them and to the supranational organisations. I'm simply making the point that most yeah. policy is decided beyond the level of national government. Mm -hmm. So the, the role of the national government in all of this is to be a policy implementer not a policy decider. Hmm. And the real policy level is done at those supranational organisations or those large lobbying groups. So, you know, power is moved as far away as it, it can effectively get from the individual. And so I'm following everything you're saying. Hmm. And, uh, you know, some people think it's evil. Some th people just think hmm. it's organically the way it works. Uh, I think it's for me, it's a lot of the way politics works and the fact they've now got technology that can accelerate the things they want to do makes things a bit of a problem. Uh, one step to make this situation better, looking at the incentives, for me is maybe some form of separation of money and state yes. would help. Yeah. And, and I think it can be both things. It, it can be both... Um, it could be a collection of people who think they are doing the right thing that 
produces a result that, that is evil for us because, you know... The road to hell is paved yeah. with good intentions. Well, and not just that. The, pe the, the people, as we talked about, national governments are the implementing layer, and it's the layer above that who are basically forming policy now. It's the lobbyists, it's the international groups, and they all think that they're doing the right thing. However, they are all the people who have benefited the most from the, Fins, uh, the, the Fiat Ponzi scheme. Yes. They are basically, you know, what's bobbed to the top of this particular swamp. And from their position, what they perceive to be good is, of course, going to be a continuation of this system. It's going to be a continuation of the, fin the, of the Ponzi, the Fiat Ponzi scheme, and it's yes. going to be all of those other things. So that has the, when you layer that back to a set of assumptions which no longer apply, which channel money to the top, it can, it can be both simultaneously a bad outcome and effectively an evil outcome for the masses. At the same time, everybody's involved in it. I think that they're doing the right thing by supporting the system. Yes. Hmm. So how do we fix it? That's, and it's important. And like this need fixing, because yeah. I think it gets fixed through revolution, as I said, but I think revolution is messy. Hmm. And it, you know, it's maybe like we go two back, steps backwards through government and one forward through revolution, but it's still a slow decline into hell. So, I mean, I think we're alluding to two problems there. One is the economic set of problems and one is the political set of problems. Well, the political cycle, to me, is the biggest problem. Yeah. The political cycle without any... Well, it doesn't, it doesn't match with the economic cycle. No, it doesn't match with the economic cycle, but also the... Uh, there's no disincentive for politicians. There's no punishment for politicians for, for screwing things up badly. There's, there's very little social uh, cost. There's very little career yeah. cost. Because, well, there's, there's no incentive not to kick the can down the road. Yeah, but, but there's... There are disincentives to not do that because you won't get elected if you don't do it. Yeah, but also poor performance. Mm. Every one of these fuckers leaves government and they end up on a board or a advisor to a company because they have influence and they can peddle influence and their mates are still working within government. Yeah. Like that whole part is, is completely and utterly broken. I mean, we talked about Macron earlier about, you know, he's, he's pushing through these reforms and, you know, you think he's not going to be successful. I think he's going to be successful in a large element of it. I think he will see them down, but he won't be able to get elected again after having done it. But that is not necessarily a failure for him because we know what happens with these characters is once they, uh, once they fail at the ballot box, there is always some international organisation which is willing to pay them an absolute fortune to head up some other thing. Yeah, I mean, Tony Blair, rather than sitting oh, yeah. in, in, a, in a jail in The Hague, yes. facing... Uh, oh, his power levels have only increased. Yeah, and he should yeah. have failed. He should have faced trial over for war crimes. Yeah, and instead now, I mean, have you seen him now? He, he, he I mean, he's going along to. I mean, I, I, I watched a lot of his stuff at the WEF recently, but I mean, he's effectively put himself in charge of Africa. Right, and, and you know, his uh, Tony Blair's foundation is out there, give, you know, well, giving them advice, but effectively doing the same thing that I've just described, which is being that layer above government, where he is designing the policy that then gets implemented by African governments. And what I found so interesting as he was sat there on that um, West stage was how he referred to my presidents. Yeah, hmm. so so African presidents he sees as as being sort of feeding into him they're his subordinates but that that's the whole thing with this in, this this international group of policy setters now with him i would go as far as saying he's evil and the reason i go as saying the, he's the dark evil, lord is evil i yeah. i because 
uh, he took us into a illegal war in Iraq based on fabricated evidence against the largest protest this country has ever seen. He and he had, yeah, um, I can't remember who Claire Short resigned. No. There were a few people resigned from his government at the time, and he still took us into it. He didn't listen to mm. the electorate. Nobody wanted that war. Everyone knew what it was about, uh, and he did it anyway. And the consequence of that was regional destabilization, the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, including children. Um, yeah. I don't find there's a particular significant difference between what happened there and what's now happening in Ukraine. Mm. Both unnecessary illegal yeah. wars. So, to, to my shame, I did support the Iraq War at the time. Okay, because I and I realised it was a mistake. Now. I supported COVID lockdowns, and yeah. I realised it was a mistake. And and the reason I supported it is because I got wrapped up in the propaganda that was sort of coming out at the time. Now, of course, I recognise that the that the West has propaganda every bit as bad as you know any other sort of tin pot authoritarian nation around. That's well, why not you, even the tin pot ones. But. That's why you probably have approached uh, COVID with a little more scepticism than maybe I did. It happens. We're yeah. allowed to make these mistakes. Yeah. Um, I mean, Ukraine is interesting. I mean, I know you're, you're a bit more mainstream than I am on that one. Yeah, so. I, it, I reject the idea it's mainstream. I mean, Putin is a dictator and he has uh, uh, assassinated mm. uh, people in foreign countries uh, he has poisoned people. He's shot and murdered journalists. He has yeah. uh, 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 stolen from the Russian people. He has amassed a huge amount of wealth and power. Look, I'm not going to. I'm not going to pretend I know. So I am not going to make the argument that he's a good guy because I do not believe that he is a good guy. Yeah. But everything on the list that you just gave me. Um, okay, we don't shoot our journalists. We just, you know, Julian Assange. We just keep him in prison that's, forever. That's that's one, and and I complete. I'm a, yeah. I'm a supporter of Julian Assange. I've interviewed yeah. his entire family, yeah. but that's one. You still have jur journalists in this country who can criticise the government. Yeah. Yes, at risk, but they could, they still do, and they will do. You do not have people. I mean, the spectator uh, the spectator does it. Private Eye does it. You. You don't have journalists criticizing Putin in Russia because they will be shot, poisoned, or okay. But the West is much more artful in the way that they do it. You know, here we just fund them. So if you look at who's actually funding the the, the newspapers, certainly since COVID, it the, the the biggest advertisers going into into these papers are now government. But, but I would entirely reject. I, yeah. I would reject that that that. Uh, what's happening in Russia is analogous to what's happening in, in the UK. I think we have much more freedoms here, much more ability to criticise. Yeah. And uh, Putin is a dictator. You don't have free and fair elections. If you yeah. try to become, a, if you attempt to become an opposition party which gains any ground, uh, you face arrest, uh, coercion. Po I mean, Navalny was poisoned. Yeah, so I am certainly not going to take the opposite side. And I say don't that, see I don't see yeah. Rishi Sunak uh, poisoning the tea of Keir Starmer mm. if he starts to gain ground. He will just lose an election. So they, to me, they are entirely different scenarios. Okay, so yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with saying all of that, but that's yeah. that, that's not my point of difference. My point of difference is that you know, for example, we could have had a peace, a peace deal in Ukraine in March, and. It was Zelensky who unilaterally pulled out of that. Why? And why? What were the details? I'd have to know the details. 
what um, was a peace deal on offer? Did did he have to uh, well, give I, up more land? They've already had Crimea we, we, stolen. We, we, we don't know the full details, but we do know that basically we, they were several drafts in, and they were sort of basically the eleventh hour, and it was the signing stage. Yeah, see, I can't I can't mm. judge it without knowing the details, yeah. the evidence. But they have had they were attacked once, had Crimea stolen, and they've been attacked again. What's stopping it happening again and yeah. again? Like maybe this is the final resistance. Yeah. So I think this is closer to our point of difference. Is that if you if you frame that conflict through the way that the media has described it, it would be completely immoral to take any other view than the view that you're taking right now. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I'm using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying right now. I'm a hodler. I'm not selling. We're in a bull market, but I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I've been stacking sats through this bear market. Now, both the app and website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi 2.0 makes privacy effortless as the wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join like you had to in Wasabi 1, this can all be done automatically, so you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can send privately. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. Also, you get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount and there is no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking more seriously, and Wasabi 2.0 makes this so much easier. To find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W A S A B I W A L L E T.io. Also, today we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, please head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. I don't need the media to frame that to me because I, I, I rejected the Iraq war and, and the media supported mm. it. Like I, you know, I, I can independently mm. make decisions. Mm. I can independently see what's happening in Ukraine. I can independently see what's happening in Belarus. Yeah. I can see the history of Russia attacking previous Soviet states. I can see people being poisoned and murdered abroad. I can see the destabilization mm. efforts. By the way, which usually brings people to, to into their world of what about is and say what about. You know, and I can completely agree that also that we've been a destabilizing force in the Middle East and completely yeah. criticize our politicians. So, so all of that granted, but I, th- I think the way that I'm approaching this is perhaps a little bit differently, which is to look at um, it's more of a civil war that has been raging since 2014. I don't see it as a unified country 
which has been invaded by a foreign force. I see it more as the people in, people in Donbass have been at war with um, the Kiev regime since 2014. That's fair. Border yeah. regions, not just Donbass, it's other border regions. Yes. Yeah, well, Donbass principally and... I forget the name of the other one, but but, but there yeah. are there are Russian speaking people who yes. have chosen to live on and, and, and the Ukrainian know, side of the border. And how much do we know that? Uh, well, they found themselves living there; they were born there, or, or well, whatever. Well, yeah, but but how much do we know that's being stoked locally? I mean, look, we'll never know the details, yeah. and like any, like, that, people who listen to this will take one position. They will be like, "Oh, yeah. you believe Russian propaganda, or you believe Western propaganda," or they'll say, "I've got no fucking idea." Yeah. I think the ones who say, "I've got no fucking idea," are probably the most. Honest. I did dig out. I mean, uh, I won't show it to you now, but I did dig out an interesting CNN clip from maybe 10 years ago, which shows, which basically talks about the people in Donbass getting shelled by the Ukrainian government. Um, and I actually know somebody, well, not directly, I mean, through internet magic, I know somebody for an online game I play. Yeah, and I saw uh, a video of, a, of uh, Russians shooting down a uh, yeah. Malaysian Airlines uh, jet yeah, I'm, over Ukraine. I'm not, I'm not saying it's great here, but, you know, I knew somebody who lived in... The, who lived in the Donbass, who was getting shelled all the time, got fed up with it and ended up moving over into Russia. So I see it more as, 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 as that sort of conflict. Um, You're right, it's probably a border civil war. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a civil war which sides have been brought into. Now, has the US done everything it could to avoid that war or did it escalate wherever it could in order to get another forever war? That I don't know. Yeah. Uh, one, I can mm. build... The problem with all these situations, I can build both arguments... Mm which I don't know if that's a strength of mine or a weakness. I can build the argument, yeah, it's another forever war. It funds the military-industrial mm. complex. Or I can say, no, this is Russia, Russian aggression against. At some point, you've got to stand up to it. I, I guess how we got onto this topic in the first place is, is more that the media narrative has been very good at painting this as, you know, Ukraine is all one people, one happy family who will agree, and then... Russian tanks came rolling over the hill. I disagree. Uh, maybe, maybe on uh, maybe on American. I mean, I saw a specific coverage. I can't remember if the BBC or Sky News or whoever that covered what was happening in the Donbass region, the political mm. escalation, what was happening at the local police departments, mm. how there was like tit for tat battles between uh, the Russian natives living in Ukraine and the Ukrainian locals. I saw. I've seen all of this. Yeah. Like I've I've dug it. I've dug into it. Yeah, but I mean, you're not typical of the people who. No, but this was. Ma- but you're saying mainstream. I saw this in mainstream coverage. Okay. So, and sometimes the mainstream may be right, even if mm. you are anti-mainstream media. Sometimes it may be right. Mm. Um, I don't think I'm falling for propaganda to to make the claim that Russia is a uh, aggressive nation. Uh, who've entered another country and they are looting. Yeah, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking, I'm, I am not taking the opposite side of that view. Um, I am saying that um, Western powers are all too happy to have a war. Uh, historically, it, it is serving that, yeah. their purposes. Yeah, historically, yeah, but they didn't start this war. So it's like, that's like... That depends if you see it as a civil war. But, yeah. I mean, look, I, I would find it very difficult to say, to blame the West for extending a war they didn't start. <laughs> I mean, this, this is Russian aggression. Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia yeah. positioned their troops across the border for months. Russia has bombed cities. Russia has 
conscripted and people Kiev, to sign and up. Kiev was bombing Ukraine for many years before. Uh, sorry, you, you, Kiev was bombing the Donbass for, for many years. Was that, that following the previous invasion when they uh, they annexed Crimea? I, I, I don't think you can draw a cutoff line at any point. Well, so history, history starts off here. This is this is a whole series of events that goes back many many but, decades. But, but if you're making the claim yeah. that they were bombing them, I would just say was that. A pre or post Crimea annexation because if that was post that's war that's already started again from Russian aggression so I don't know without all the details but yeah I don't know the full details but I'm not I think the point I'm making is like so people focus is that I'm not just going to reject something because it was reported by the BBC or Sky News. Yeah, and and, and I'm not I'm not necessarily at this point trying to. Um, I, I am certainly not trying to say that there is a good guy and a bad guy here. Yeah. I'm saying there's two sets of bad guys. Okay, um, and it's it has suited the West to advance another forever war, which is perhaps yeah, perhaps. I think the more interesting aspect of the um, of this conflict over the last couple of years is what it's done to the euro. Because there is a framing of this, which is we know that the US dollar is in danger at the moment. Um, We know that they have been coming down hard on crypto as a potential escape route. Mm -hmm. I saw the great um, interview you did with Doomberg recently, where he's describing Operation Choke Point 2, effectively. Um, Bitcoin is a threat to the system. Mm -hmm. But actually, what is the biggest threat to the dollar today well it's it's the fed (laughs) okay i i I, I meant it as external um it's actually the euro so something like 60 percent of um international trade is done in the dollar at the moment second place is the euro which was accounting for something like 20 percent of international settlements Hmm. now what has one of the interesting effects of the last year this conflict been you know what's underpinning the US dollar. It's basically the US economy and the US military. What's underpinning the euro? Well, it's Germany, really, isn't it? Hmm. I, mean, it's, 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 you know, I mean, I know there's 26 members of the, of the Eurozone, it's but, it, but it's Germany. Um, and it's not the German military, it's the German economy. What is the German economy? Well, that's a 5 trillion um, euro economy, which is all based on 50 billion of cheap Russian energy. And that has effectively been kicked out from under them now you're given an excuse for bombing the Nord Stream pipeline. Well, I mean, come on, what's going on there? That, that, that is the US um, effectively crippling the economy of, of Germany. Danny, can you look this up? Mm-hmm. But prior to the Iraq war, uh, I'm under the belief that Saddam Hussein wanted to move away from pricing oil in dollars to the euro yeah. and he wanted to do yeah is that true well that's what um Plastine. said on the show yeah yeah and so in that scenario that's a threat to the dollar yeah. being the global reserve currency in that one of the largest producers of oil is moving from uh uh, uh, uh moving away from uh pricing oil in yeah. dollars to, to the euro so that was a threat and then we get some isn't it interesting? Every time a viable threat to the dollar comes along, they, they find American tanks rolling down their driveway before long. Yeah. But I, I never actually fully, like, Gladstein told us that, but I never actually fully researched it. Yeah, me neither. Um, you can have a look. But the taking out of the Nord Stream pipeline, it has had a hugely damaging effect on the German economy, yeah. which has knocked the legs out from under the euro, which has significantly reduced the potential of the euro to offer a threat to the status of the dollar 
at a time when the dollar was at the weakest. Yeah, but they just moved to the, uh, the yuan. Yeah, that, that's harder to take out at that point. But they yeah. do—they are a very small part. And, it's, and there's a lot of challenges for the China becoming... I don't think China wants to become the reserve currency. Mm. Anything? Yeah, in 2000, November 2000, tried to price his oil exports in the euro. Is there any additional context or interesting things in that? Um, Anything tired? What, what date was it? November 2000. When did the Iraq war start? Uh, March 2003. Huh. Hmm. And you would need that much time to build up a case. It's not like you could do it in November yeah. and evade it in December. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. now we know but what the fuck you're up to. There, there are conflicts all over the world and we mm. don't hear about most of them. Yeah, I, I think in 2020, I remember looking up there, where there were 14 live conflicts around the world. Conflicts around the world. I would have thought there'd been more. Yeah, and we only heard about one of them, which was the Ukraine one. Now, there are... That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. That's just not true. So we've we've continually heard about what's happening in Yemen. Yeah, I mean, okay, you're right. It's Which not. Is it's, a, not a it's not. It's not a case crisis. that it's invisible. But you know, what are most people aware of? You've got to remember that you know you are not typical when it comes to the level of attention no, to world B events B you play. B BBC covers the Yemen war, not to the same degree. To be fair, no, not to the same degree. But but there is a different scenario when it's it's a yeah. I mean, how long has that war Saudi Yemen war been going on for? like a couple of decades, perhaps. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. But this is a brand new war mm. and it's happening on the border of Europe. Of course, mm. we're going to see more of, of it. And yeah. also it's Russia, the, the, the second world power in war. It's, it's a nuclear armed nation, mm. you know, starting war on the edge of Europe. That is mm. more newsworthy than, yeah, than uh, something that's happened between Saudi and, and Yemen. But we do hear mm. about other wars. If you name me the other wars, I, I mean trying to remember them oh i mean I, I'd, I'd have to look them up at this point yeah yeah i mean of course but it's more newsworthy mm. yeah and again I'm, I'm, I'm not going to take the opposite side on some of this stuff that's trying i'm not going to try and tell you that putin's a good guy yeah um no, I, who's the worst bad guy yeah, i get it yeah, yeah. And, and for me like i say the more interesting aspect is that attacking of, of rivals of the dollar um that for me seemed a very neat way to sort of to attack the um, the euro, yeah, and, and and it was successful on that. Although that said, I mean, what you're talking about more broadly, it, it does feel like we're very much the end of an era, because I mean, the petrodollar has been, you know, effectively America's greatest superpower over the last fifty years. And how did it get the petrodollar? I mean, basically because in combination with its own energy resources, and going to the House of Saud and saying we will give you military guarantees as long as you price in oil. Mm -hmm. And then going to everybody else and saying, um, you will price your oil in dollars or you're going to get invaded, and several of them did get invaded, um, has led to this sort of era of everybody needing dollars in order to get energy, which meant that the US could then... Print oil. Well, print debt and use that to get effectively free money. Yeah. So they, they have effectively had free energy for the last 50 years. Mm. And it, I mean, it feels that that is unraveling on a, on a daily basis at the moment. And didn't hasn't Saudi announced that they're going to pause pause oil production? Oh, well, no, no, that I, I, I no, that's pause, OPEC said they're going to reduce it by a, bit, a million barrels a day. Yeah. That's because the price of oil was dropping. They yeah. wanted to increase it. No, I th uh, I th Saudi are joining the BRICS group. Yes, yeah. and they will be. Who is it who also just said they're going to be buying Russian... Oh, Japan. Didn't Japan just announce they're going to buy Russian oil? I think you might be right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many announcements at the moment of people moving away from US hegemony. Yeah. It, 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 it does feel like that is slipping quite fast at this point. It is. It yeah. is. 
We were certainly at the end of the unipolar era. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and as we were in a potentially dangerous spot because um, the US establishment is still very strong and they know that they've sort of been holed below the waterline at this point and they're lashing out. Hmm. And, and that's what I think was driving the behaviour with the Nord Stream takedown and also with what they're doing at the moment with Bitcoin, hmm. the attacks that they're making on that. So how do we fix all this, Dan? So... <laughs> How do you and I fix this, mate? What should we do? I mean, we know how to fix the economic side of it, don't we? Yes. We fix the money. Yeah. We fix Bitcoin. So I don't think I necessarily want to... Fix Bitcoin? Bitcoin's works. Yeah. <laughs> fix it with Bitcoin. Yes. So I don't think we, we necessarily need to rehash that here because, you know, these arguments have been yeah, made. Everyone knows that. Yeah. Agrees with it. Um, well, not everyone agrees with it, but anyway. I, I, I turn my mind to what's wrong with um, democracy. Yes. Now... I think about what, what I would do differently. It's effectively painting castles in the sky because none of this is going to change. But, I mean, for me, it's a useful thought exercise as yeah. to what, how it could be different because it's not necessarily obvious um, how bad our current system is until you line it up against something that could, could potentially be better. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, actually. Where do you think block blockchains can come into this? I don't. Why not? I only think Bitcoin because block, a blockchain does one thing. It's, it, it was designed to solve the double spend problem, mm -hmm. and it works as a self-contained system where the 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 token exists within the system. So, do you think do you think Bitcoin is money, but doesn't necessarily have use cases beyond that? Uh, no, not entirely. Um, you know, it is a time-stamping machine, mm. which is can be useful. But primarily, like, I care about Bitcoin as money. Mm. And the blockchain was designed as a way to solve the double spending problem. And, and, that's, and that's what I think a blockchain is for. And I think blockchain has been used by marketing people to sell other kinds of ideas and things. I wonder if it's potentially bigger than that. Because, okay, look, electricity was a digitization of energy, yeah. which allowed the use of energy to expand significantly. The internet was the digitization of information, which has allowed the amount of human knowledge to expand dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, are blockchains not the digitization of value? No. Beyond just money? Bitcoin is a digitization of value. Okay. Okay. Where I'm coming from is... If you frame it as the digitization of value, then a huge part of that is going to be money. But there are still things that are valuable over and above money. So um, I'll give you a small example and a, and a big example. Uh, a small example might be something like hotel reservations or airline tickets or something like that, or even coupon vouchers for, for your local supermarket. All of those things have value, which would benefit, I think, going on some sort of blockchain that makes them easy, more easily tradable. So if you can't make your hotel booking at the moment, you just don't turn up. And it's not great for you because you, you've, you're out of pocket for this and it's not great for the hotel either because they can't sell all the ancillary services that go with it. If that was on some sort of blockchain, then that would allow you to very easily resell that through the blockchain to somebody else, which right, benefits everybody. Right. So it's, you're, going down, you're going down a rabbit hole that... that is a necessary one to go on. I think it's important to go on it, and then to you, and, and then you realize why it doesn't work. A blockchain is just a database. That's all it is. And it's, it's a really a, slow, inefficient, expensive database. Yeah, it's it's only thing that it's really good at 
is that it stops the double spin problem. And it's censorship resistant. Yeah. But do you know, do you, like, this is subjective, but I'm going to paraphrase something that Parker Lewis says. He's a guy who's written a lot of stuff about Bitcoin, really smart guy. But do you know what he thinks is the, the number one factor that gives Bitcoin value? Security, perhaps? No, that there's 21 million. The fact there is a hard cap. Mm. The hard cap is what we don't have in the fiat system. We have it in the Bitcoin system. That's what gives it value. And he's therefore saying the number one thing we need to do is ensure we enforce the hard cap. Okay, so that's what Bitcoin does. It has to enforce the hard cap. I'll send you, um, mm. I'll send you some of his articles. They're in a series called Gradually Then Suddenly. And so if you're, you, you, know, you enforce the hard cap, the more, but you still have to have the ability to be able to spend it. Mm. You have to be, have the ability to be able to send it to each other. And so you need the blockchain to do that. That's how, you know, along with the rules of consensus, that's how you, uh, that's how you batch up transactions and you allow people to send value to each other. That's what it does. But it, what it stops you doing is lying, okay? Because in each block, you have to follow the rules mm. of consensus and check that hasn't been spent before. And so that's what blockchain does. But it's slow. It's inefficient. Mm. It takes like 10 minutes to get all the transactions together. We need uh, layers above it to make it work. Mm. What do you think a blockchain actually solves? What do you think a blockchain does that another database doesn't? Um. For me, it is it is the digitization of value, and you, I know you say it's slow, but it's still potentially a lot faster than a lot of the other systems that we have. I guess where I'm essentially going with this is I am asking the question, and, I, and I'm not I'm not wedded to the solution here on this. I'm just thinking that if blockchains are the digitization of value, well, a vote has value. Is that something that could could be better expressed through a blockchain, perhaps even on the Bitcoin well, network? Well, but what is it you're trying to fix? That, that, that's wrong with the ballot box. Maybe it's worth coming back to this then, because I'm yeah. thinking this is a potential tool that, that gets us to um, assist with the solution, but it's not the solution in itself. Like if you said to me, I think we need to move to liquid democracy, whereby your, your vote can float. Mm. The idea of liquid democracy is super interesting. It's like rather than voting every four years, you yeah. have a floating vote. And if the government is... Mm piss poor and your vote floats over and then suddenly they lose their majority, they're out of power. Well, okay. And I like yeah. that idea of liquid democracy because rather than kicking the can down the road, mm. it's a, it's live, it's happening right now. And they're, they're, they are, it's upon them to retain their uh, leadership constantly. And as they fuck up, fuck up more, they, they can see they're losing power and then they have to, you know, re try and retain it. I, you know, if you said to me that, we need some way of digitizing our vote so we can have liquid democracy so I can literally on my phone go, do you know what, fuck you, I'm changing my vote. I get that, and that's great, but that, I still don't need a block, you still don't need a blockchain. Yeah, yeah okay, so, so may, may, maybe the blockchain is, is a red herring on that, but I, I think that's tangential to my point, so, so it doesn't particularly matter. I, I think everything you're saying there is absolutely right. What are the proper principles of democracy because at the moment we have we have this democratic system but i don't think we genuinely have a democratic system i think we have something that we call democracy which is effectively wearing the skin suit of it i mean you think about um uh we've got 650 mps okay mm -hmm. i know not all of them turn up not all of them take their seats but what you've effectively got is 650 people who are all elected by the largest minority within their constituency now, because we've got a fairly uniform culture, a fairly uniform media, 
And I know we've talked about the influence of the mainstream media and, you know, the amount of information you can get out of it. But you, you've got to admit that the, the vast majority of people are consuming that media and they're consuming the simple messages within that media. So when you have, um, if, if you look at any particular constituency, maybe I should have looked up Bedford before I came here, but um, you'll find that most MPs are elected with a mon minority of the vote. So it's, it's simply the largest minority within each constituency, okay? So you get this very uniform set of opinions that, that are spread across this. And effectively, what you end up with is 650 people who believe broadly the same thing. They've got some variations, but not any significant variations. So where this was particularly marked was over the lockdown period. Really, out of 650 people, there wasn't, there wasn't one who was against it. They all voted for it. Um, what about Bitcoin? Out of the 650, how many of them are think that Bitcoin is a crucial issue? If you were to take 650 random people from the population, I bet you'd find at least one of them who thinks that Bitcoin is a is a is the crucial issue of our times. Yeah, but isn't that down to the like the gaming of politics, whereby you have to follow the whip? Yeah, that, that, I mean that's exactly what happens because. But, Entering politics these days is not decided by somebody, you know, thinking um, I've got better set of ideas and I'm going to run and I'm going to I'm going to try and win people to my point. It is we have been sort of dragooned into this situation where there's a red team and a blue team, a little bit of a yellow team, and to get selected to go on the list to go on the candidates list is is the selection criteria, and the parties are. Uh, looking for a very uniform set of characteristics within those people. So what you end up with is 650 people who all think pretty much the same thing. They've all got the same set of solutions to stuff. And anybody with an alternate view outside of that, which is particularly marked when you look at any particular issue such as Bitcoin or lockdowns or whatever it is, you see that those views are simply not represented. It's kind of what that thing I was talking to you about. Do you remember? No, what's that? Do you remember I said, like, there's that Venn diagram of things? Which, oh, yeah, yeah. So I was saying to Danny, the way I see it at the moment, there's a Venn diagram, right, of topics whereby uh, you've got, uh, say, Labour on the left, Conservatives on the right, and within that Venn diagram, the topics they will debate. And in the left circle is the, is the Labour opinion, and the right circle is the Conservative opinion, and there's ones that are overlap where they kind of probably share opinions. Okay, so for example, on tax in the right, it would be conservatives, which are higher tax, uh, sorry, lower tax. In the left, it would be uh, labor with uh, higher tax. And the agreement bit in the middle is that, well, tax should exist. So I, th I think that's the view that they try and pretend exists. Hold on, bear with me. So, so but where they overlap is they agree tax should exist, right? Yeah. And what I'm saying is, if you come out with a thought that doesn't fit into either circle, you're a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. So if you come out and you say, well, I think Bitcoin should exist, that's not acceptable because that's not within, then that's not a subject where one's saying yes and no or they agree on. It's outside of the remit they're willing to discuss. So you're a conspiracy theorist. But if it's within those sides, it's acceptable discussion. So climate change is acceptable debate, whether you yeah. agree it's an issue or not, because that's something they debate over. Hmm. So... The, the way the political system works is they want to have very vigorous debate within a very narrow range of topics. Yes. To give the impression that, you know, like you say, your two Venn diagrams that hardly overlap. I think actually those circles are almost entirely overlapping with just a little bit of sliver around the outside yeah. that they don't overlap on. And you can see, um, say with Liz Trust, I mean, she didn't have to go very far out of the mainstream view. It was just, okay, let's um, cut taxes a little bit. 
and for that she was outed 40 days. You don't have to stray far at this point. So, so my brother listening right now is going to be banging his fists on the table and say it was more than that with list trust. Um, yes, to an extent, but what, what argument would he make there? I'm not going to make his argument for him. Okay. But when I previously raised the fact there may be a little bit of conspiracy around her uh, her ideas or policies with regards to driving growth that were rejected and, and the markets re get, reacted in a way to get rid of her because her policies were a threat to the status mm. quo, that kind of thing. Like I brought up before, and my brother's like, well, hold on a second. These were unfunded policies. These were massive tax cuts. These were unfunded policies. That's the market reacting to... <sighs> Yeah, so, 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 so two things on that. One, um, yes, she brought, far, she brought forward the tax-cutting element of it and then said, and, and a month later, I'm going to give you the corresponding um, cuts elsewhere that balances this. So, yeah, she did, she did split them out. And then, um, yeah, she should, she should have brought those both together. But mm. she, was, she was in a bit of a hurry to try and get this, this bit through. But as I mentioned on the last show, the market knew about all of that um, in advance, the only thing they didn't know about was the two billion um, cost of the, of the top rate tax cut. And actually, the issues in the Bank of England had been brewing before. There's, there was a quite a good um, unheard article, which I'll, I'll have to send you, which lays out the timeline of how the um, that the pension crisis in, in those bonds had been brewing, and analysts were talking about that was going to be an issue, regardless of what what Liz trusted. Um, so I won't get too much into that. But yeah. m my point is more that there is a very narrow set of consensus opinions within Westminster at the moment. So I would ask the question differently, what would be the principles of good governance? Um, one is I think that the governing should be as close as possible to the governed. This is something we've talked about a number of times over this discussion, is that power is actually moving further and further away. Yeah. National governments are, are just implementers of policy, they're not formulators of policy, mm -hmm. because they're too busy doing the day job, which is funding, reaction, um, getting elected. All this policy idea comes down from, from above. So governing should be close to the governed, okay? You're talking about localism. Um, a, a, a more advanced form of that, yeah, okay. effectively. So, so I'm for not opposed to that. With, with my um, local councillors, you know, one of them lives at the end of the road. So I can go on, knock on the door, if there's anything I'm particularly upset about. I wouldn't do that because they have absolutely no power and therefore there is no point. Hmm. If I've got a problem with a policy that's coming out of the WEF, I mean, what the hell do I do about it? I mean, you can't even vote your way out of it because um, both parties are signed up to the same agenda. Yeah, and dev devolution, I think, it has certainly benefited... Hmm. Wales in some ways, Northern Ireland in some ways, uh, Scotland in other ways. They can at least set local policy on certain things, I like which is that a lot. Yeah. yeah, but we're talking about expanding that into. And do you know what? The idea of expanding that into counties, I think, is a great idea because it makes counties compete with each other. I love that. I I would do it slightly differently in the UK because we've got a lot of history here. I'd actually, I'd actually return to the ancient kingdoms. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying bring back the kings along with it. It's just it's just that sort of size of you. Just think of Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. Don't get caught up on the kingdom element. I'm, I'm just yeah. talking about the historical roots of this. So, I mean, I, I'd probably describe myself as a bit of a Wessex nationalist. I'd like to see um, Wessex return as a, as a sort of autonomous political unit. Um, the reason being is that's about the same sort of size and scale as a Wales or a Scotland. Yeah. And then you could do the same, you could do the same in Mercia or Northumbria. Well, I just or, look at the US. I mean, I have friends that have moved from California to red states because there are tax benefits 
benefits or they they like yeah. the differences in the laws you know that the and and there's a, like that big push for states rights i like that i like that there is no you get no uh legal or tax code benefit for moving in this country so there's yes. no competition between counties or regions. So what that removes is innovation. Yeah, of course. So if if you have a single... And in fact, not only are we anti that in this country, we, are, we, we actually even have a term for it. We call it the postcode lottery. So if anybody tries to innovate in any particular area of the country and it produces a different result, we call it the postcode lottery and we attack it immediately. Hmm. So you get this uniformity of approach. Now, I've spent a little bit of time um, doing consulting in local government. And I found probably the biggest problem was the risk-adverse nature of the people who work in that organisation. Because there is zero upside in delivering anything which is better for people. I mean, if you're the, if you're the politician, there might be some benefit in it. But if you're the, the, uh, the civil servant, the implementers, the yeah. people who actually were the permanent staff, there's no benefit in delivering something that's better. And there's there's very little individual benefit because you're put into yes. uh, wage bands yes. and career progression is particularly difficult. That's why they tend to, I personally think, and I'm sorry if you work in the civil service, but I think the standard of people in the civil service is out. I'm not talking about the police, the firemen, the nurses, who I think are superstars. I'm talking about the people who work in the local council. Generally... I think are a lower uh, standard than the people you get in the private sector. Yeah, so I, I do have a take on that, but let me just finish the thought. There is no benefit to the upside, but there is career risk if you screw things up. Hell yeah. Is it? So, yes. Hmm. Yes, because you will be passed over for promotion. If you, if, you are, if you go out on a limb and you say, I want to do this thing, and it delivers great upside, you know, fantastic. If it screws up and it costs the council money, then you are less likely to get that next promotion to direct level or head but of council. But that's life. Or that's the same in the private sector. If you fuck things up, you're not... Yeah, but in the private sector, you, there's also that commensurate reward if you, if you do well. So what happens if you take away the reward, you, yeah. but you keep the career risk? What you end up with is a whole group of people... You want to have economic reward? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah effectively. Okay. If, if, if you're, if, let, let, let's say you're in, your, you're in a, a medium-sized business and you come up with a zinger of idea and it doubles that company's revenue you're getting a hell of a bonus and you're, you're, you might be made a director. You know, there's lots, of, there's lots of upside from it. You will do very well out of it. And I think the private sector understands the um, opportunity costs and, and the risks associated with projects as well. But if you're in the public sector, if you attach yourself to something which might have upside to it and you fail in that, you get all the career risk but none of the upside to it. So what I found when I was working with local government is that there is an extreme... Um, career risk aversion to trying anything new. Hmm. So that's why you get that really static response. Let me just come back to your point you made about the quality of the people. I actually found that at the lowest levels, um, there was either no difference or actually the public sector people were probably a little bit better. Yeah, I've they seen. haven't had it beat out of them. <laughs> yes. they, haven't, they haven't gone through the monotony of working year after year with no recognition or mm. no ability to, to progress, no ability to compete against the others. There's no benefit to turning up early and doing a great job. Yeah, but I, th I think at least halfway up the organisation structure, the quality of the people in the public sector is no different or possibly even as good, or, or possibly even better. Mm. It's after you go halfway up. It's once you get into middle management and you start going beyond that to the senior levels, that's where the quality of the people really degrade. Yeah. Because these are not people who've taken risks, they're people who have, have avoided career risk their whole time. So 
these principles of good democracy that I'm talking about, well, it's, it's, it's close to the governed, it's good innovation, which we simply don't have at the moment. I like what you're talking about there, about um, regions that can experiment. So I think the Americans are closer to this because they already have that state system. Mm -hmm. All they need to do is overthrow the yoke of federal government and get powers returned to the states. And I think that gives them the innovation and the opportunity to try. So the, the route for political re-engagement for them is a lot simpler and it's a lot clearer. It is return of those federal powers to state level. And I think that is something they are very much aware of. I want to achieve that here, if we can. Now, it'd be amazing. By the way, it's never going to yeah. happen. What's going to no. happen is that so, everything's going to descend into chaos and we'll have a revolution. None of this is going to happen. But if I could, yeah. I would go back to those ancient kingdoms, which is, you know, the, the Wessex and the East Anglia and the Mercia and so on. And basically just groups are roughly the same size as we've got with Scotland and Wales now. I would do the same. I'd actually bring back the kings and chop their heads off if they fuck up. Why not? Yeah, you, why not go all in? Yeah. Now, what that gives you is it returns power closer to the level. But within that, I would have um, direct democracy. So yeah. well, I think what you would, you called it liquid democracy, did you? Yeah, well, liquid democracy is the, the idea that you are, you don't have a term, you're mm. in. And as soon as, you know, as soon as you lose a certain percentage of the vote, there's a triggering force, yeah. you're out of power. It's a real-time voting. Real-time voting. Yes, I love exactly, that. Exactly. I fucking love that. I think it's great. Yeah. Now, there are arguments for a representative democracy but you can have both in this day and age with the sort of the, the speed of information. So if you are somebody who is really politically engaged, you can follow a lot of this stuff and you can vote directly on the bills themselves that are coming forward. For a lot of people, that's not going to be the case. So you should be able to delegate your vote to somebody else. Now, that person could be, um, I don't know if you've got a brother, but say, say mm -hmm. you and your brother, you're really politically engaged, your brother isn't, but your brother trusts you where he could just lend his vote to you and then you're voting two votes. Gosh, I need to think that one through. Well, it follows on from here that what will happen, what will emerge is a certain number of people within each area, region, state, ancient kingdom, whatever you call it, would accumulate a large number of votes. So let's say you wanted to have the benefit of a representative democracy. What you would simply do is you'd say, okay, within each region, the um, 50 people who have accumulated the most delegated votes, you give them an office, you, you give them a salary, you bring them into some central chamber, and those are the guys who hold the executive to account. That sounds like a scary centralization of power to me. Yeah. Why does imagine it have more many, bureaucracy? Imagine how many like Elon Musk sycophants are just give him the vote and like the control that, that can then wield. You've just given a load more jobs to people. You've just expanded government, Dan. We're trying to reduce government. Look at our national debt. No, because <laughs> it is giving you direct control of your vote by recognizing that a lot of people would not necessarily want to exercise that themselves and would want to delegate it to somebody else. I also like the idea of that governments have a budget. And if they go over budget, it triggers well, election. Well, let me finish the thought on this. The reason, okay. the reason why I like it is a lot of people will go, the, a lot of the NPCs, a lot of the normies will just go for um, a, a single um, a charismatic figure, a very mainstream figure, and a lot of votes will accumulate with that. That is exactly what we have now. Hmm. What we have is 650 people who think all the same way. So under this system, what you'd end up with is you'd end up with a small number of people who've got an awful lot of delegated votes who are completely mainstream, who are completely within the sort of central bubble. But beyond that, what you'd end up with is people who are representing um, views that don't get any traction, don't get any representation at the moment. 
almost certainly you then start getting delegates whose their, their primary focus was Bitcoin, for example. Over the lockdown periods, you get people who their primary focus was um, being anti-lockdown. It's almost like that single issue voting stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. But with the proviso that you could always take back your vote on any particular issue that you wanted to. And this would be a fairly fluid thing because the, 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 the reason people like the representative democracy is because you do need, you want, you want a group of people holding the executive to account. That's the other thing you've got to do. You've got to split out the executive from the legislative. Mm-hmm. So the legislative would be your, your delegated vote and it would be those are the people who define the job of the executive. Now, that's the other thing that you've got to split out is, is those executives. Why do we, at the moment, we have a very simplistic system of how this works, which is we vote for a party and they, they do the entire executive job. Why can't you do it by, by function? So um, why? So you have your regionalised system, and then um, each of those is going to want to operate, say, um, the NHS or the health service that you have, or operate the um, response services, the police. And why do you, you can you can have a different executive uh, directly elected for each of those functions? Hmm. You don't need a single executive. I mean, it's never going to happen as well. No, again, yeah. it's not. Yeah. And, and it's so I, also, I also like your idea that, um, um, or well, the one that we talked about before, is that those executives would then be exec- would be elected with a certain amount of budget. I just think, yeah. I think budget should be, yeah, I have to operate with the budget for my business, my house and everything. And, and I work hard to make sure I you know, spend mm. less than I earn. There is zero incentive for governments to operate within yeah. a budget because they're not spending their own money. Yeah. I would. I love the idea that if if they were over budget, or if they need to go over budget, that triggers an election, and they have to tell the country mm-hmm. why they're going over budget, and then the opposition can say, "Well, we don't need to go over budget because we're going to do X." So there's competition to become more efficient, rather than the opposite. What we and, have, and, and that's why I like the sort of the regionalized system because what you would then end up with is people in different regions trying different responses to problems. And some of them would be more successful than others. And you're starting to... See, well, you're, you're seeing this in, in the US now. Yeah. Um, you know, Texas is, is doing very well on the Bitcoin front, whereas, was it New York has made it effectively illegal or something? Well, like that, not or mining such, or, but, but yeah. yeah. But it tends to go down political lines. But I just like that... I like tax wars. Yeah, mm. we, we are in this, we're in this country without that competition between regions. Mm. That essentially, they can constantly increase tax. Today, I've heard about the tourism tax that's coming in in Wales. There's just constantly new taxes that are constantly mm. hitting us because there is no competition on the tax front. Mm. But the idea that you would have a budget and then when the government's go, going to go over budget that they have to tax us mm. or print money, which causes inflation, the opposite, there's competition to reduce that's what I like. It's, it's, it's that innovation layer. That's what's so important here. Is you need people to try and find different solutions to all of this. Dan, none of this shit's going to happen. It's a bit no, like it's, it's like a bit, bit like the yeah. the legal system. There's no incentive for lawyers to make the system more efficient because they get paid less. That's why it's stupidly yeah. complicated with appeal after appeal and appeals courts and supreme courts and this fucking mm. rule and that rule. But there's no incentive, so nothing's going to change. But it's, it's good to talk that, about. Yeah, it, it is. I, I think it's. I think it's sometimes worth touching on these topics. Yeah. Um, the reason being is, is you've got to kind of highlight how basically flawed the system is now yeah. but then again it wasn't so long ago when people were saying you know bitcoin can never replace fiat currency and that is looking increasingly less likely all the time yeah um 
and and my thinking is more, more likely. Oh, more likely. Yeah, sorry, more 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 mm. likely over time. Um, and my thinking is more, you know, as these political systems start to unravel as well, it is worth having an eye on the future as to what we could do from it. But unravel revolution. Yeah. That's why things going to happen, man. Dan, great as ever. We dis- we disagreed a few things on here, but that's okay. We went back that's and right. forth a bit. That's um, right. Uh, I'm going to send some bits to you. There's some bits in there I, I didn't, I can't explain as well as other people. I really want mm. you to read some of Parker Lewis's work that gradually then suddenly... I've got a podcast it. for you to listen to as well with John Seth and Perry and Boring. Yes, Perfect. about voting. Well, let's send yeah. you those things. They, those people do a better job explaining these topics than I. Uh, where should we send people to find you? Yeah, so... Um, I do a couple of days a week now at Lotus Eaters. So I've got a series there, Brokenomics, um, where I talk about the economics more than the politics, actually. I just thought the, the politics would be interesting to discuss today. So, uh, yeah, check out lotuseaters.com. Um, and I've got a Twitter account, which is um, kingbingo underscore. It's nice a silly one. name, but uh, I, I picked it 12 years ago when I thought Twitter was only going to be a thing for a few months. Well, we will stick that in the show notes. Yep. And I'm sure on the next sprint, Danny will be in touch and say, let's go round three. For sure. Good chat. Thank you, brother. Okay, what do you think of that? Do you enjoy that? Do you find it a bit spicy? I definitely want to hear your feedback on this. Okay, as I said in the intro, me and Dan kind of disagreed on some of the solutions. We butted heads on a few things, but look, this is a good thing. We all disagree. We can all disagree as long as we can find a good way to discuss this and debate this. And I think it's a useful conversation to have. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. If you've got any feedback on this or anything else, please hit me up. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com or you can go and jump into our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. All right, keep your fingers crossed. Big weekend ahead for Braille Bedford. Hopefully when I speak to you next, we'll have brought the league home.